Welcome back to the With All My Heart podcast, hosted by Luis Navarro. On this session, I sit with a very talented individual. Jason Weaver, a.k.a. Jay Weave, has contributed to pop culture for almost 30 years, appearing in movies, sitcoms, and music. This was a very interesting conversation with Jason because he covers a lot of ground, from the movies to the music and everything in between. Hope you enjoyed this session as much as I did. Don't forget to follow Jason on social media to keep updated on what he's doing. And don't forget to subscribe and share. All right, my bro. Glad we finally made this happen. You know, I've been looking forward to sitting with you and just discussing your journey. Although we go back 10 years, I never really, you know, got to learn the the details of your journey. So I look forward to it, bro. Just give yourself a little introduction. This is your boy, Jason Weaver, representing Chicago all day. But most of my friends and, and you know, people that follow my career and fans, they uh, usually refer to me as Jay Weave or affectionately refer to me as Jay Weave. Um... Man, I'm an actor. Uh, my background is um, I've been in this business since I was like six years old. Uh, like I said earlier, born and raised in Chicago. Um, started off doing commercials, print ads early on in my career. Um, and then was blessed um, years later, uh, like around nine years old, to get my first you know feature film Um called uh, The Long Walk Home with Whoopi Goldberg and Sissy Spacek. And that was about the Montgomery bus boycott. It was like a period piece film, but critically acclaimed. It wasn't as commercially as successful as they had forecasted it, but it it ended up being one of those films that people kind of like highly regard um, with period piece cinema, and especially cinema related to uh, the civil rights movement. So that was my first film. And then from there, I got a chance to work with Oprah on... um, Brewster Place, the series, not the women of Brewster Place, because people get that, they get that confused sometimes. They're like, man, you was in the, man, in there with Jack A, and I wasn't in the one with Jack A. I was, there was a, um, a spinoff series, uh, that ABC did. It was like, it was short-lived, though. They only aired, I think, maybe like eight episodes, whatever, but, um, I played, I played in that as, uh, Oprah Winfrey's character, as her nephew, I believe. And Jason, how did you initially get into child acting? How was your upbringing? Like, how did you get into the the business? Well, my 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 upbringing, my my family was or is in music, and my mother and her sisters at the time were really active uh, in the uh, jingle business in Chicago. Um, my mother is uh, Kitty Haywood. For anybody from Chicago, that's maybe listening to his podcast. Um, my mother, Kitty Haywood, and her sisters, uh, Ann Stewart, uh, and Vivian, Vivian Love, um, they were in a singing group together called Kitty and the Haywoods years ago. Oh, and Cynthia Harrell, uh, my cousin, they were in a, a, a singing group years ago called Kitty and the Haywoods, uh, where they had a deal, um, with, uh, Curtis Mayfield, uh, with his production company and Curtis, uh, featured them on, um, uh, the Sparkle soundtrack with Aretha Franklin. So the original, like, giving him something he can feel that Aretha Franklin sang on, my mother and my aunts were on the backgrounds in that. And they worked with, like, uh, the Ohio Players, and um, they worked with uh, Tyrone Davis. I mean, they worked with a lot of, you know, legendary, like, soul acts during that era, like the early to mid to late 70s. And um, they had... 
their own records out um, for a minute on Capitol Records and Mercury. Um, they're actually like highly regarded and respected with a lot of R&B and soul fans overseas, like people that are really heavy into, you know, disco records and soul and nostalgia and stuff like that. Um, they're, well, not surprisingly, but surprisingly, uh, my mother and, and my aunties and my cousin are like popular over there in that scene. So anyway, fast forward, um, you know, years later, um, they kind of retired from being professional recording artists and started more or less getting into the jingle business. Cause back in the early eighties, late seventies and early eighties in Chicago, um, there was a communications firm called Burrell communications, which was the first advertising firm in the country that specialized and geared their ads towards the African-American demographic. So, you know, prior to the late 70s, mid to late 70s, you didn't see black people um, advertising products on TV, whether it was soap, whether it was fast food, whatever the case may be. It was always traditionally white. But uh, Tom Burrell and Burrell Communications uh, provided um, a platform uh, and an avenue for young black singers and performers to be able to sing these jingles for these commercials and for these different brands and make a shitload of money in the process while doing it. Um, because the jingle business for vocalists and especially uh, off of residual income and stuff like that, based on how these, you know, these jingles are played, you can make a great living off of being a jingle singer, you know what I'm saying? And you definitely made a great living of it back in the 80s. So that's what my mother did for many, many years throughout the course of the late 70s and the 80s. Sing, uh, singing. singing, yeah. Um, so, I mean, she was on big campaigns for like McDonald's for um, uh, honoring Dr. Dr. King. She was on Crest commercials. Um, she's been on some really like iconic and memorable spots that if you grew up in the 80s and 90s, um, and if I said, oh, remember that ad with this, that, and the other, they, you know, you'd be able to go, oh, I remember that. And be like, well, that's my mother. You know what I'm saying? Um, but anyway, through, um, her being heavily involved in, in that end of the business, um, she was constantly interacting with, you know, producers for commercials and, um, you know, people that were in charge of print ads and stuff like that for billboards. Cause Chicago at that time in the eighties was like, a major hub for advertisement firms and for the production houses that crafted their, their jingles in their spots. So I was around that all the time growing up. Like I was in a studio surrounded by, you know, my cousins who have gone on to become, you know, successful producers. Like they were constantly surrounded by it. And I just, uh, I already naturally had a, a love for it. I, I wanted to be on TV from the first time I saw like my first movie, which was E.T. And I saw Drew Barrymore and, um, you know, and those actors, you know, performing in, in that in that uh, film. For me, I was like, damn, I, you know, I want to do that. You know what I'm saying? And when I see the Cosby show and shit like that, like see Malcolm Jamal Warner, especially Keisha Knight Pulliam, shout out to Keisha, um, you know, seeing her at the young age and she was, you know, really acting on a television show. So that was kind of, you know, my driving motivation for wanting to get in is because I was interested in it and I loved, you know, performing for people and making people laugh and entertaining people. So 
you know, the actual passion was there. And then I was blessed, very blessed and fortunate enough to have a, have a mother who was just already involved in it. And when I, when I expressed a genuine interest and in wanted to get involved and, you know, really confirmed it with my mom that that's what I wanted to do, then she took it upon herself to, you know, initiate and begin to help me build my career through her relationships and and that's how I got in. Do you recall what age you were when you initially started having these thoughts of getting into this business at a, at a young age? Yeah, like like four. Like four or five years old. Because that was, yeah, that was right around the time, like, when did E.T. come out? Like, 83 or something? Was it 83 or 84? It was like that whole era when, like, E.T. was the shit and, you know, and fucking Michael Jackson, like the thriller was out and it was like that era. So it was like 83, 84, because I remember specifically like, you know, I was seeing, um, even people like Emmanuel Lewis when he was, you know, being Webster and, you know, we didn't know at that time he was a little person. Like, I mean, he was still a kid, but you know, but you know, I was looking at kids like him going like, damn, you know, they're on TV and it seems like what they're doing is cool. Um, Soleil Moon Fry, who was on Punky Brewster and Cherry Johnson, my good friend Cherry. When I was seeing those kids perform on TV, you know, that's that's when I just said like, man, I can, I can do that shit too. You know what I mean? Just in my mind, I was like, man, I can do that. And it really wasn't confirmed until like I went to my first, you know, real audition and I was instructed, you know, as to what to do. And I was able to take notes and execute them properly. And I saw that other kids around me had difficulty doing that, had difficulty receiving instruction and applying it. Because, you know, kids are distracted. You know what I'm saying? Like, kids' minds go everywhere, you know, because we're learning. We're soaking up information. But I learned that I had a special skill that I was blessed with where I was able to still do all of that and learn and soak in information but I was also able to as well focus in on what I was being told and apply that, you know, and execute it to a T to where I could perform and work as a professional. Right. How was your first uh, audition as a, as a child? I mean, as an adult, it can be overwhelming. So I can imagine as a child. It was definitely something that I had to kind of grow into because I didn't know that's what kids did to get on camera, get on stage like I wasn't aware of an auditioning process. So, you know, for me, um, I remember my first print ad that I ever that I ever actually booked was for Coca-Cola and it was for their um it was like their holiday season ads that they were gonna be like running in Jet magazine and Ebony magazine and you know, the Chicago Defender and like, you know, black publications around the country. And um I remember my mother, you know, getting me dressed. We lived in a um, a small suburban town outside of Chicago called Dalton, Illinois. And but I mean, it's part of Chicago land area, but it was the suburbs. And um, we would have to drive from Dalton to downtown Chicago, the Loop, to meet with casting directors and people like that. So I remember it being a big deal because you know I was having to get up earlier that morning so that we could beat traffic and. Um, cause it was like in the middle of the summer and, um, and then I went and these grown ups were, you know, looking me over and, you know, talking amongst themselves and, you know, asking me certain questions, you know, about what I liked and, you know, very random stuff, but I, I thought it was pretty intriguing 
the kind of engagement that I was having with adults and that they were like genuinely interested in what I had to say, which usually in my family, you know, didn't nobody want to hear it. The fuck I had to say it like, you know, five years old. So I thought that was cool. And, but I remember, you know, walking out and them telling me, you know, can you bring your mom in? And, you know, and then them discussing with my mom that I that booked the job and this was kind of what they needed me to be prepared to do on the day. So I'll never forget, I, um, the, the day of the shoot, it was a photo shoot. And like I said, it was for their holiday, um, their holiday season ads that they were doing for Coke. So Chi-Town in the, in the, in the winter is brutal, but Chi-Town in the summer can also be very fucking brutal as it relates to the humidity and just the heat. And so, man, they ended up putting me in well it tripped me out because right there in downtown chicago they had fake snow on the ground they had a christmas set up they had christmas trees up they had a store decorated like it was the christmas season they had a big red wagon filled with coca-colas and in an ice chest that looked like it was freezing cold and that was for the set that was for the shoot that was simply for the shoot and they ended up putting me in like these layers of clothes winter clothes and I had to stand there with this woman that I was pretending was my mom. And we were like head to toe in winter shit, man. I'm talking about that. I had the scarf on. I had the uh, the skull cap on. And it was like 85 degrees. And I'm sweating fucking bullets. Dude. But we pulled it off. And we got it done. And it, and it turned out to be a dope shoot. And when it came out in Ebony Magazine in Jet Magazine, I showed it to my family and I saw the pride and the happiness that they felt for for me, for what I was doing and pursuing my dream. And then that's when it was confirmed for me that that's what I was supposed to be doing because I was like, okay, I feel good doing this. Then on top of that, like my family is praising me because, you know, I'm doing this and all right, I'm, I'm going to stick to it. And so I did that for a number of years, like I did print ads and I did commercials. Like I did a, a McDonald's commercial. Remember when Happy Meals used to um, come with the little toys and shit? Well, there was this one that they had where you had the cars and you would, you know, skirt them back or whatever and wind them up and then you let them go. All right. I was in that Happy Meal commercial and that was the shit. I'll tell this story real quick because I know I'm rambling. But that was the shit because... And Illinois is where they have the Ronald McDonald House. That's where the McDonald's Corporation is. Ah, McDonald's comes from Illinois? Yeah, it comes from Illinois. Um, well, it, 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 it started, it was founded out here in Bakersfield. But the guy that made it McDonald's, the international brand, Ray Kroc, um, he was from Arlington Heights, Illinois. He was a salesman from Arlington Heights, Illinois. Came out here to Chicago while, I mean, came out here to California while he was trying to sell some shit. Met the McDonald brothers, took their business model, set up one in Des Plaines, Illinois, and the rest is history. So the Ronald McDonald house, um, where the foundation is at and all of that, it's right in Orland Park. So I'll never forget, man, we go to the McDonald's headquarters to shoot this commercial and they have a McDonald's inside of this office building. And I had never seen anything like that. Like, so we go in, 
they had the restaurant setup that I guess they used for commercials. But it was like a functioning McDonald's. Dude. They were like, you guys hungry? Because it's like, what, three kids in the commercial? You're like, you guys hungry? We're like, yeah, why? You're like, because guess what, guys? Why are you shooting this commercial? You get free McDonald's, all you can eat all day. Whatever you want. Man, we went ape shit crazy. I had like, I think I had like five cheeseburgers that day. I had the filet of fish. This is when they had the McDonald Land cookies that came in the box that were the bomb, that were fire. Then I took like boxes of that shit home. Like I had actual boxes like that, like two boxes, and it was just filled with cookies because I took them back to the neighborhood and like passed them out to the kids and shit. And um, and we shot that commercial, dude. And like, I'll never forget. We just it was experiences like that that helped to shape my love for being in the industry because I recognized that I was doing things that other kids my age weren't doing. And I was being exposed to things that, you know, not even adults back home were exposed to like, you know, nobody on the South side of Chicago. Crazy how young you were and still acknowledging how blessed you were in the position you were in. I'm going to keep it real with you. I was always reminded of that because in downtown Chicago at that time, it was like all white, like the advertising agencies with the exception of Pharrell, like, you know, downtown and still is now. I mean, it's very diverse. It's like young professionals and stuff like that. But Chicago is a very segregated town um, for it to be up north. It's probably one of the most segregated cities in America on the low, quietly. Ask anybody like and Dr. King even spoke about it Um years ago before you pass of, you know, what was the most racist place you've ever been to or where you felt you were in the most danger. And he'll tell you Chicago when he did the Freedom March up there. But anyway, um, the reason why I say I'm able to, to uh, that I was able to recognize at an early age just how blessed I was is because I would, we would leave from downtown Chicago and we would have to come back south. And if anybody that's from Chicago Rush hour traffic in the afternoon going towards the south side is hell. So my mother would usually buy, try to bypass traffic by taking like State Street down and then taking State Street down to some other street. And then she'd eventually get us like back in our neck of the woods without having to deal with the Dan Ryan Expressway. Well, the further you went down State Street and deeper into the south side of Chicago, you would have to pass by the Robert Taylor homes. And the projects and shit. And see like real poverty and real hardship. And this is during the 80s, during the crack era. So like, it was like a war zone in that motherfucker. Like, and we would go through there because we were just trying to get home. And it wasn't like a real risk to us because we were black and, you know, we just going home. But I remember it in my mind. I used to process that because we would go from this very corporate, structured, it's all white environment where I'd hardly see any of us. And then on the way home, I was reminded that my people weren't, many of us weren't afforded with those kind of opportunities. And I was unique in a sense, or I was, I was very blessed. Let me say that I was blessed to be in a position that I was in. So I never took that shit for granted. Because I would have to see it. I see kids on the corner when we stop at a stoplight 
to keep heading toward south. I see, I see kids on the corner pitching dope, pitching crap for a dealer. Like, with their hat banged to the right, throwing up a gang sign in the middle of a fucking war zone. As I'm pa- as me and my mother are passing by, and I'm looking out my car window. Like, Crazy, man. How was your school life during that time? Were you in school? I was in school, but it was a thing where, I mean, this was before homeschool programs and stuff like that. But, you know, my school... The schools that I went to did as much as they could um, to try to keep me, you know, aligned with the rest of the class and keeping me up to date with the curriculum because, you know, I would get tutors whenever I worked. Uh, the studio or the production company, whoever, whoever I was working for at the time, they had to supply that. That was the law. Like, there was a, there's a law that you got to do three hours of school a day, um, five hours max a day. Um you had to maintain a certain kind of grade point average. If you were getting grades lower than a B, you couldn't work. Wow. Yeah, like like you had to maintain a certain grade point average. Otherwise, you legally couldn't work. Um, it was it was a lot that went with that. But no, the, the school situation was pretty... It was pretty cool because my mother did an excellent job of communicating with my teachers and with my principal and, you know, making them understand what I was doing, although they really didn't. Cause you talking about, first of all, you talking about Chicago where nobody's really doing that period, except theater actors that live downtown. And then you talking about a black kid from Chicago doing this and he's going to be going out of town to work. Okay. And he needs his assignments and he's only going to do three hours of school, but you want me to plan out his curriculum for the next month. You want me to plan out his classes for the next month because that's how long he's going to be gone. Like, that's what my childhood was like with that. But, no, I mean, my teachers were cool. And, you know, shout out to Greenwood Elementary, McKinley Junior High, uh, Ileana Christian, Thornwood High School. Um, those those were my schools that, that I went to um, back at home. And um, and they worked really hard to, to make sure that I was able to maintain some sense of normalcy. Um, you know, even when I came back into the fold as being a regular student, cause I would work, be off somewhere and then come back. How was that experience like? Like how would your friends and the other students take that? I mean, they, a lot of them got a kick off of it. Like I rarely dealt with, I rarely dealt with any hate or anything like that. Cause I never, like when I would come back home, I wouldn't be bragging about nothing. Like, like if you had a problem with me. You just had a problem with me based on the fact that you knew I was coming out here to Los Angeles or going out of town working and doing some cool shit. But I was never coming back to the neighborhood and making niggas feel like, you know what I'm saying, I was better than them or no. Like if, if anybody asked me any questions when they was like, man, so what'd you do, Joe? Like, I'd be like, well, you know, I did this commercial with Bo Jackson. Man, for real, you met Bo and shit? Like, yeah, like, and you know, if they had questions, I'd answer willingly. Um, but I knew that I was in a very unique position and I didn't want to alienate myself, you know what I'm saying? From my core group of friends that didn't understand, like I recognized early on that I couldn't tell them everything because they just wouldn't get it. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, they kids that's going to school and I'm talking to them about, you know, some motherfucker lining up a shot and I'm getting my two shot and a single and a over the shoulder and I'm on a half apple box and I'm doing and, and we block the scene like this. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, 
but no, it was it was cool growing up in Chicago during that time. Um, it was cool, man. Like I I enjoyed. See, it's it. always interesting for me to hear the details of how things are done and operated, like from the outside looking in filming a, a, a film or a movie it's like all right stand in front of the camera hear their lines and there you go but there's so many details that come with that there's a lot that goes into it man a lot of attention to detail like what you like what you just stated like um but that was one of the things that i learned to really appreciate like as an artist early on was when i started learning the importance of that in the techniques that you apply in order to achieve that, that's when I fell even more in love with it. Cause I was like, man, this shit really does take some brain power. Yeah. Like you really got to work. Like Absolutely. this isn't just playing around. Like, man, I'm really thinking about, you know what I mean? And I'm, I'll never forget, especially when I did my, my first feature film, um, shout out to Whoopi Goldberg, man. If you, if she ever hears this man, like Whoopi, I love you. She was so nice during the long walk home because I was like nine years old and I didn't know terminology, like set terminology. I didn't know what people were talking about. So when somebody be like, go over there to the first AD and let them know that you're on set. And you're like, what's an AD? What is he saying? And Whoopi would take the time to educate me as far as what was going on around me. Like I didn't know that actors had stand-ins that stood in for them while the crew was lighting the shot and prepping the Uh, shot. So that's how that works. So that's what the stand-ins are for. Every time you establish a new shot while doing a scene, the camera crew and the lighting crew have to adjust the camera and the lighting accordingly to remain consistent with the rest of the scene, as well as to make the actor or people that are featured in that scene look as good as possible. So while they're doing that and adjusting those lights, they don't want the actors just sitting there getting tired. So they bring in people that they call st- uh, stand-ins or the second second team is what they're referred to on set. And these are people that have a similar uh, physical likeness to you, whether, and especially with, with uh, black actors, it's really more about the skin tone and the complexion um, and height size so that they know how to properly light you so that when you come back into the frame to do the scene, you don't have to stand there and they have to figure out, you know what I mean? Uh, That's interesting. So would you say that's more for the actors to kind of conserve their energy and not get burnt out? That's exactly what it's for because it gives you that chance to, you know, go back even in the little waiting area that they have there on the side and set like video village or you go back to your trailer while they're setting up the shot and that gives you time to stay in the moment or if you feel you need to study more, or if you just need to be alone or where you can remain in character, that allows you to do that without the distractions of seeing guys moving around, moving shit. And so the second second team is just as important um, to the production as, you know, the guy lighting it or the wardrobe people. And they're really like the unsung heroes as well of filmmaking because they're the ones that sit there and, you know, stand in and, you know, and they get the shot that, you know, they line the shot up for you and then they have to go and sit out on the sidelines and watch you perform. And, you know, it's not a, uh, it's not a glory position, you know, and those people do it because a lot of them are just trying to get their foot in the door and they love being in the business so much that just to be around it, 
man, to be able to soak up the energy is like good enough for them and to get earn a paycheck at the same time. Yeah. And they're learning and they're establishing relationships and connections. Yeah. Somebody will fill in the line up the shot so that you get that opportunity as an actor to stay, stay in it and stay in your moment. And, um, but I mean, as far as, I mean, there's a hierarchy when it comes to the trailers and shit, like, you know, if you're the number one and the number two, you know, you'll get like a star wagon and then usually as it trickles down, uh, they'll give the actors that are like, you know, three, four, five, six, those on the call sheet, you'll get a honey wagon, which is like, it's a, it's an extended like trailer where they have multiple dressing rooms and they call it a honey wagon. So you'll see them on the sets. Like you'll see these trucks and then you'll see what it looks like, maybe about six or seven rooms. Those are dressing rooms and they call them honey wagons. And usually when you're like the number three, four, five, you have one of those. But the star will get like a big ass trailer. Cause I remember when I did the long walk home, Whoopi Goldberg's trailer. I was blown away by that. Cause we were in a honey wagon, a tiny little fucking room. And like Whoopi had the fucking trailer and she had fruit in her shit and you know, she her her makeup people would come to her and do her makeup and her trailer. She had a bed, like a big bed in there, a microwave, and she had done like movies prior to that that made her like a staple. But this was her first, I think, dramatic role um that she had displayed because she was playing a, a mother, a black mother in the during the Montgomery, 1955 Montgomery bus boycott and the shit that went with that. And she did an excellent job. Like it's, if, if anybody out there, if you ever see it, um, or, you know, catch it on TV or able to stream it, check it out. It's a, it's actually a really good film. And I'm not just saying that cause it, it was my first one. It's just, it's, it's actually dope. It's a good. And film. with that being said, I know you started off with commercials. So is it safe to say that the role of Michael Jackson was like your first big break? And anyone that is not aware, Jason played young Michael Jackson back in the day, both vocally and playing him in front of the camera. Playing young Michael Jackson, yep. It was a miniseries. It was called um, The Jacksons and American Dream. And it originally aired um, or premiered on ABC uh, probably close to maybe 27 years now, close to 30 years ago. Um, nah, man, that was an amazing, uh, that was an amazing experience. And how did you land that role? How did it come to your mother's attention? True story. My, this is, it was in Chicago. Um, one of my cousins, uh, Laney Stewart, uh, was a producer. Shout out to Laney. He had, um, he had a studio, um, that my mother was actually a partner with him in that she helped him build in Evanston, Illinois, called Groove Asylum. It was like literally around the corner from Northwestern University. And um, at the time, Laney was being managed by a young lady by the name of Ruth Carson. And Ruth Carson was, um, she was a manager at DePass Entertainment. She was one of Suzanne DePass's like, up and coming managers, talent managers there that was, you know what I mean? Just like managing talent that was signed to Suzanne DePaz. And, uh, she had like actors and she had people in music. And I think Lainey was 
one of her producers in music that she was um, uh, managing and overseeing. He was one of those like new and upcoming producers that A&Rs were really excited about. But this was during a time when like, you know, you just didn't FedEx off two inch reels and shit like that. Like the A&Rs literally used to have to come to wherever the producer was and go to the studio and sit in the session and build with these cats. You know what I'm saying? The good old days. So like Lil Silas would come through there. Gerald Busby, like, you know, legends of the game, God rest their souls. Um, but anyway, Ruth came to Chicago uh, to hear what her client had been doing. And so he was playing her records. And um, while she was there, uh, me and my mother happened to be at the studio that day. And they started, and she started talking to Lainey about the fact that uh, they were about to do this movie about Michael Jackson and his family. So, of course, my ears perked up because Michael Jackson at that time was, like, bigger than life. Um, and she turned to me and she said, oh, yeah, by the way, Jason, because I, I heard a um, couple of your little demos and stuff because I've been recording um, with my other cousin, Tricky. He had like a little B room, like a little, it was like a damn near little closet that Lainey had him in. And him and our other cousin, Sean, would be like packed in there, making their little beats on the drum machine. And I used to come, I was like nine, 10 years old. And I used to sit on the floor and watch these guys, you know, make little beats and shit. At that age, man, they started. Yeah, they were like tricky and Sean were making beats. We're in the studio at like. 14 years old, 13, 14, years old. And like, like 10, and I was like 9, 10. Like, I wrote my first song, Be My Girl, with Tricky and Sean on Immature's album, on their first album. It was called Be My Girl. Like, look it up. Credits are there. Immature's very, very first album. They, um, they had a song on there called, it was a slow record, called Be My Girl. And Tricky and Sean produced it, and I wrote it. And I was nine and Trick was like, Trick was like 15 and I think Sean was like 16. But yeah, so um, so I would be up at the studio because I was trying to find my voice as a singer. And, and so when Ruth um, turned to me and said, you know, you should audition for that. Because, you know, with you singing and, you know, you kind of look like Mike. You know, you may want to audition for it. Like when we get it. When we get it together, you know, I'll let you know who, because she was like, you, you've you acted before already, right? And I was like, yeah. She said, well, who's your agent? And at the time, I was signed to a local talent um, agency um, headed up by two magnificent ladies, Elizabeth and Ann Geddes. It's called the Geddes Agency. That's where I got my start, was with Elizabeth and Ann Geddes. Love them to death. Yeah, love those two ladies to death. They helped me out tremendously in my career and um, one of their employees and associates, Paula Music, um, who was working for the Getty Sisters. Those were the, the women that were instrumental in helping me really kick off my career, you know, as far as being my representatives. And so I told Ruth, you know, who my reps were. And so I ended up, my mother and I ended up the next day um, calling the, uh, the Getty Sisters and Paula, letting them know that there was going to be this movie about Michael Jackson, his family coming out, and to be on the lookout for it. And as soon as 
um, breakdowns had been sent out and auditions for the role to put me in the mix. So sure enough, they followed up and they were able to, you know, get me, they were able to submit me and get me to audition. So I, we had to leave from Dalton, Illinois and drive all the way up to, um, downtown Chicago. Once again, uh, put, I was put on tape in the Getty's office and then they sent my tape out here to Los Angeles. And then, um, the casting director ended up seeing it and the director, Karen Arthur, and they suggested that I do another, um, tape, but they wanted to see like more dancing and more singing. So, you know, this was a time, this was pre phone, all of that shit. So it's like, you would literally have to wait a week or a few days for shit to transfer. And so finally, like when I, when we got the word that they wanted to, they wanted me to put myself on tape. We, me and my mother took like a week to just learn everything. Jackson five, Michael Jackson. And we practiced that shit every day in our kitchen in South Holland, Illinois at 1604 Volbeck road in the kitchen with her with this little uh, black Casio tape deck. And she went out and bought all of the old Jackson's stuff. And I literally rehearsed those songs. She taught me the mannerisms. And I just rehearsed it until it was like just ingrained in my mind. Choreography or vocally? Vocally and choreography. Like my mother helped me prepare for that audition. I got that role because my mother prepared me for that shit. I, I give her all the credit for that. Like I did my job when I went in the room, but my mother did everything she could to prepare me for that. Shout out to my mom. But, um, so when I finally went back and put myself on tape again, when they called back from LA, they were like, he got to come out here. So they flew me and my mom out here. This is my first time ever coming in. No, this is my second time. Cause I came out here for a premiere, uh, years before that for the long walk home. But this is my second time coming out to L.A. And they flew us out and put us up in this little, you know, kind of little shabby hotel in L.A., like off of Olympic or something. Mm -hmm. And the next day was the audition. And at that time, ABC was in the uh, Century City Twin Towers off of Avenue of the Stars. Um, And that's where ABC was, the network. So... When I went in there, I'll never forget. They were like, all of these kids, there were kids everywhere. Like, and the first, the first round of auditions was like, they put groups of kids together and asked you to come up on stage and perform as the Jackson five. And, you know, whatever, whatever, um, Jackson, they were interested in you possibly playing that's where you stood and you try to perform or emulate that person to the best of your ability. So, uh, of course, they had me auditioning for Mike and I passed that round of auditions, which I thought was weird because I was like, I thought this was a producer's callback where I just go in the room and do my thing. But sure enough, they wanted the kids to go through like the full gamut, the full extent. So by the time you did reach the producers, you knew it wasn't a fucking game. You know what I mean? So finally... They tell us, okay, you guys are going to audition for, um, you know, Suzanne DePass and um, 
and uh, the Jackson family and the director and all this shit. So I was like, okay. So that there were only a few kids left that made, you know, the finals, so to speak. And it was me and maybe like 30 other kids left. And so the assistant casting director, I don't know if anybody's ever been to a casting session before, but usually it's like people crammed in a room and then they toss you what are called sides, which are like, which is pretty much the scene, the scene that they want you to perform in front of them. So the casting assist, the casting director assistant is just kind of tossing the sides to kids. She's not even looking at what she's giving kids. She's just like, cause I could tell she was a little overwhelmed. It had been a long day. So I think she was just on it like, man, I want to get the fuck out of here. You know what I mean? She tosses me the Randy side. So I'm looking, I'm like, Randy? Like, man, no offense to Randy, but I was like, man, I didn't come all the way out here to audition for Randy. Like, like, man, I can't go back home and tell niggas I audition for the role of Randy. Like, you know, no disrespect, Randy. No, but, <laughs> right. It's crazy that you grasped that at such a young age. Hell yeah, because I knew. No, bro, when you leave a city to go to another city and you leave school to audition for some shit, you better audition for what you came out there to do. And it was crazy because I'm sitting there looking at the sides and I'm weighing in my mind as to whether I should say something. But I didn't want to like ruffle any feathers, you know what I mean? But... Right when I was thinking that, this kid darts out of the room where the the producers and 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 you know the Jackson family was. And, I mean, this kid is crying because I guess he had a horrible audition. So as he's storming out of the room, he takes his side. He's like, oh, he throws him in the garbage can. So the garbage can is like right next to my seat. So I look. I'm like, oh, don't say Michael too, and that. The Michael two sides were for the Michael within that age group that I was supposed to audition for. So I was like, I switched out the sides to the Randy ones in the garbage can and picked up the Michael ones. I sure did. Study, refamiliarize myself with the material real quick. Because I was just trying to like get back in the moment of playing Michael. Because I was seriously contemplating going in there and playing Randy because I just didn't want to, I just wanted a shot. But I looked at the script. I was able to clock back in, dial back in. Right as soon as I dialed back in, they called my name. I went into the room, and it was like a well-lit room. Like, I mean, it was like lights everywhere, and then they had different home video cameras on either angle of the room and one in the middle, and it was kind of intimidating, you know what I'm saying? And then behind all those cameras and those lights, you saw like, Mrs. Jackson, you saw Joe Jackson, and you, you saw like Jermaine Jackson, and you fucking saw Rebe, and you were like, oh, oh shit. You, you saw like. familiar with their faces, right? Cause I mean, they the Jackson family, you're black royalty. Like, if you were black and you didn't know who the Jacksons was, and you couldn't name out each Jackson, you just wasn't black. You just, you were, or you were a fucking alien, you know what I'm saying? So I'm looking like, oh my God, the Jackson family's in here. So the uh, director, Karen Arthur, she said, okay, young Jason, all the way here from Chicago. And I saw Mrs. Jackson, her eyes kind of perk up because the Jackson family is from Gary. And anybody from the Midwest, Indiana, Northwest Indiana or Illinois, Central Illinois knows this. Indiana, Gary, Indiana is like 30 miles away from Chicago. They're like our close neighbor. 
So like Gary, people from Gary, Indiana are almost like considered people from Chicago because they're so close in proximity geographically and, and culturally wise. And I mean, they got the same gangs as we do. And you know, that whole thing, not to get into that negative aspect of it, but it's true. Um, so I saw our eyes kind of perk up and so that made me feel confident because I'm like, oh, she recognizes I'm from, I'm from back home and oh, she's nice. And she smiled at me. So that made me feel comfortable. And then I went into my performance and I just remember, I remember feeling like, you know how you get that surge of energy through your body when you know you're at the right place at the right time and you're doing exactly what you were meant to do at that time. That's exactly how I felt at that moment. And I was like, oh, and that was the first time I ever felt that. But I knew that was the feeling to have. And so um, after I got through performing and doing my lines, they gave me applause, a standing ovation. So, of course, I walked out and I was excited and I told my mom, I was like, mom, they gave me a standing ovation. Like they they really, really like me and woo, woo, woo. And. She said, well, that's good, Jason. But, you know, it's a lot of kids that's auditioned for. Just, you know, we're going to be optimistic about it, but we're going to leave it in God's hands. And, you know, if it's meant for you, you know, it'll happen. So sure enough, we caught a red eye. Well, we asked the casting director when we hear something. She said, well, you know, if it goes any further, we'll let you know. So me and my mother get on a red eye that night from here, from Los Angeles, and go back to Chicago. I go back to school the next day. No, as a matter of fact, the, the next, the following day, and that's the reason why we took the red eye. I had a band competition that I had to be at because I played percussion in the in the um, in the uh, orchestra band in junior high, and they were dependent upon me because the only two snare drummers were like myself and my classmate and bandmate uh, Marlon Millhouse, and so me and Marlon had to play these solos, so I had to be there. So I get to this school. <laughs> this is the only time I stunted on my, on my um, and it wasn't intentional. This is the only time I stunted on my cl- classmates. The bus took the kids from our school out to this school on the northwest side of Chicago where the airport just so happened to be, O'Hare. That's where the competition was. So the limo driver ended up taking me and my mom to the competition in the fucking limo. So I get out of the, you know what I'm saying? I get out of the limo and shit, my band uniform on. Everybody's like, oh, the boy just came back from L.A. Oh, shit, he Hollywood. So it was like, it was really dope. And um, So everybody's asking me, you know, what happened? And, you know, I had to tell them. I was like, well, damn, I don't know because, you know, ain't nobody told me nothing. They said I would hear something. You know, if, if, if it went any further, they just called me. And so unbeknownst to me, what had to happen was that I got approval from the family where they wanted me to play Michael, but the person that had the final say uh, to play him was Michael. So the reason why it took so long, and I had to wait a month to to get confirmation and receive the news, but it took that long because he was out overseas in Europe rehearsing for the Dangerous Tour and didn't want to be distracted thinking about what his family was doing with this miniseries. His only stipulation was like, do whatever y'all want to do with that, but whoever plays me, I got to have a hand in that. You know what I'm saying? So um, the last three um, finalists, so to speak, 
regarding the role of Michael Jackson was myself, I believe Wade Robeson, um, and um, one other kid. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I think Wade was like actually one of one of the like finalists that was really being considered because at that time, um, from what I was told, like him and Michael were really really close, and I think you know Michael was just on some shit like man, I want the best kid. Like the kid that can execute the moves, the mannerisms. So I don't think he really cared that much um, about the racial aspect of it. We waited a month. And finally, um, man, I'm coming home from school one day. I get off the bus and, you know, my mother runs out the door and she tells me I, I got it. And I was like, because I had totally thrown out my mind. I'm back on. I'm Yeah, I'm back in Chicago mode. Like making sure that I'm going to school and I'm not getting any trouble and making sure I don't run into no gangs and no shit. And I'm back in that mind frame. I'm not thinking about a fucking Michael Jackson role. So, so my mother runs out and she tells me I got it. I'm like, got what? She was like, the Michael Jackson role. You got it. He wants you to play him. And I fucking went just ape shit crazy, man. Like I'm, I ran up and down the block. I was knocking on everybody's door, you know, telling people I'm going to play Michael Jackson. I'm sure everybody thought I was crazy as cat shit, but, you know, I was just in a moment. And So in those 30 days, you literally went from auditioning to play young Michael Jackson and going back to just every everyday life. And mind you, this was like, this was before email. This was before you know what I'm saying? Like placing a long distance call on the landline was like a big deal back then. You know what I'm saying? So it's like if you got a call in, you know, like from somebody from Los Angeles, like that was like a big, it's like a big deal. And then, you know, they they had to communicate with you in that sense. Like they had to communicate with Michael overseas. And then Michael had to let them know what he, you know, what he approved of and didn't approve of. And then they had to consult amongst themselves. And then they finally put the call out. Like, you know, you got the role. And then after that, it just became, you know, that's when it just kind of took a, took on a life of its own from there where, you know, we think a couple months later is when I finally went back out to, when I finally went out to Pittsburgh um, to begin filming because that's where we shot um, the stuff where they lived in Gary, Indiana. Because they couldn't film in Gary during that time. Gary was like fucked up, like. Anybody from Gary, I mean, I apologize, but y'all know how it is back at Gary. Like, Gary, especially during that era, oh, man, it was like during, it was another crack bomb city where, like, it was bad. You know what I'm saying? You couldn't, you couldn't shoot anything there. Um, So, production opted to go to uh, Squirrel Hill in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. They found a house that looked similar to the original Jackson's house. And that's where we shot. So me, my mother, and my cousin Kevin, Kevin Harrell, we drove from Chicago to Pittsburgh to begin filming the first half of the Jackson miniseries because we were going to film half of the movie there and the other half was going to be filmed here in Los Angeles. And all those people be transported doing a full company move from one state to the next. It's a lot easier now because you have like, you know, second unit crews and, you know, shit like that. But back then it was like a whole company would move. Like the production office had to be moved. Everything. It was a whole thing. So um, 
we went to Pittsburgh, shot there. Um, and it was great, man. Like, I mean, you know, working with the guys, you know, the cast members, um, Bumper Robinson, uh, shout out to Bumper, Jermaine Jackson Jr., um, Jason Wilkerson, who played uh, Marlon. Um, damn it, who are the other guys? Well, you guys know who you are. Much love. Is it safe to say that that was probably one of your more challenging moments on set? Hell yeah, because that, I mean, man, first of all, just the weight. The weight, like, of knowing that you're playing, you're going to be playing or emulating or portraying, I should say, the most iconic iconic figure, like, ever in pop music. And this guy was still alive and had a loyal, like, fan base that was fucking, like, crazy. Was he ever on set? I heard that he would, um, he came in disguise a couple times, but I never saw him there. But it, it was something. And how long would you say the whole movie shoot lasted? Estimate. Five months. Wow. Was it five? Yeah. It was like four, maybe five months because there was like a month of rehearsal. Like learning the choreography. We, rest in peace to Michael Peters. He was our choreographer. He's also Michael's choreographer for Beat It and Thriller. Um, Michael Peters drilled us, man. Like. You know, he was another guy. One one of the one of the main reasons why I came across so well in that film, the preparation, of course, for my mother beforehand. But it was Michael Peters that um, really honed in on me and really took the time to help me capture the essence of Michael at that time period and where he was as a kid. Mike, I I, I give Michael Peters all the credit for that because. Um, you know, he would remind me, he'd be like, he'd be like, you know who you're playing, right? Like when I'd be in rehearsal and I get tired and like the rest of the guys would take a break and he'd be like, no, Mr. Weaver, I need you to give me, uh, you know, cause he's kind of flamboyant. He's like, I need you to give me just a little bit more. Cause I mean, do you know who you playing? Yeah, like that, right? wow. And I was like, yes, sir. Yes, Mr. Peters. Yeah. Well, you know. You playing Michael Jackson, so, and Michael was a bad motherfucker when he was a kid. Fuck what he doing now. He was a bad motherfucker when he was a kid, so if you gonna play Michael Jackson, you better have your shit together. And I mean, he was sitting in a mirror, and we'd go over, I'm talking about anything from a smirk on the face while singing, to a tilt of the head, to a, a hand being bent a certain kind of way, to the way you hold a microphone, to the way that you walk and work one end of the stage to the next, to a T. Like, no no bullshit. And as far as tracking all your vocals, because that was your voice throughout the whole series, how did that go? That was my voice. All the, um, all the pre-Motown stuff. So when they performed at the Apollo, when they performed at the Regal Theater, um, the uh, going to Kansas City... Um, like all of that stuff, I sang myself. Originally, it was it was being sung by um, a vocalist, a young vocalist at the time, Anthony Harrell, my boy Anthony Harrell of the uh, Harrell Brothers out here in California, a talented uh, family, talented group of singers. Um, they were assembled to be the voices, the singing voices for Jackson 5. But 
I proposed and I asked if I could sing the Michael stuff because I can sing. And I was like, well, why would y'all bring on somebody to sing the Michael stuff when I was already singing it? Like, no, I want to sing it. And then on top of that, too, I just felt like um, for what I had to do, I would be able to execute it better. And be able to portray it more believe more believably if I was the one who was lending my voice to it. So it was no diss to Anthony, because Anthony is an amazing vocalist, still is. Um, but I, I recognize that in order for me to really maximize this opportunity, then I needed to go like full in. And so they granted me that. And I went in... Um, with the, what's the gentleman's name? Uh, Harold Wheeler? Yes, Harold Wheeler. Um, uh, he was, he was he's, and he still is, uh, one of the big TV score guys. Um, yeah, he did the score for, uh, he did the score for uh, the Jackson miniseries and a, and a lot of uh, miniseries back then. And he still works to this day. He's the head conductor uh, for dancing with the stars, he's the guy that does all the like all the music that they play back. That's his orchestra and him leading it. That's conducting it. Long career. Man. Long career. So um, I went into the studio. I recorded all that shit. Uh, coincidentally, at um, Enterprise, right next door to Boom Boom. Yeah, Burbank. Yep. So I I recorded right across the street, like literally right across the street. And we shot a scene there too. We shot um, the I be I'll be there scene um, with Barry Gordy, with like Billy D. Wood. We shot part of the Jacksons there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I met I met Mr. Gordy one time when he came to set, and then I met him another time when like we did a a press we did like a press junket. Right in Century City at the Beverly Hilton Hotel where they made the official announcement that the Jacksons uh, movie miniseries was coming out. And they did this whole elaborate where they had press from around the world in this like ballroom. And man, they had us come and, um, and Mr. Gordy was there because Suzanne DePass had invited him to come see us perform. And we had on the costumes and all of that shit. And man, we went out there and tore that shit down. Like I'm talking about, yo, because we sang live, but I'm talking about, man, we tore that shit down. Like we had people in the press like, like, yo, going ape shit like fans. So afterwards, Mr. Gordy came up to me and he was like, young man, he's like, that was something. I haven't seen anything like that in years. Good job. I could see. I can see why Michael likes you. I can see why he likes you. And then he, after that, he went on about his business. You know what I mean? To, to work alongside with those people and for them to take time out to, you know, kind of give you some insight and direction as far as, you know, what it was like back then. Like, even Joe Jackson took the time out one time to talk to me. You know what I'm saying? Like, coming out of his trailer one time and I happened to be out there talking to like a wardrobe person or something and they were fixing something and he came up and he said, young man, you're doing a really good job. And I was like, oh man, thank you, Mr. Jackson. I appreciate it. He was like, oh, call me Joseph. I was like, okay, Joseph, what's up, man? He was like, yeah, you're doing a real good job. He said, you know, Michael, um, 
he had shared something. I won't share that because it was that was a personal story that he shared with me. But um, after we had that conversation, um, I knew that I was on the right path because I was like, damn, if Joe Jackson took the time to you know chop it up with me, then I must be doing something right. And at that point, although you were young. Was that like confirmation or did you feel something like you were on the right path? Like you, obviously you were happy with what you were doing, but were you like on the right path? Did you feel like you that's were? That's when I knew like that's when it was confirmed for me that I could really, really, really do it and like and compete at a high level. You know what I'm saying? For certain kind of roles, because I knew that playing Michael Jackson was something that, you know, not a lot of people could do. But at the same time, not to discredit people that were coming up um the same time I was but I I knew that I possessed something and was blessed with something that was a little bit different and that my talent was a little bit more unique in a sense in order for somebody like you know Michael to to recognize it and to acknowledge it and give me an opportunity you know what I'm saying to portray him like he didn't have to do that he could have picked anybody in the world to play that role but he gave me the opportunity to do it and you know that that's why man like i when it comes to this business and this game and just life in general, I don't take shit for granted, man. I'm, I'm appreciative and thankful for it all because I've, I've really had some very, you know, extraordinary opportunities, man. And, um, continue to have them. God continues to bless like every Absolutely. day. And so at this point in your career and journey, is it safe to say that your next big, uh, role was the voice of the singing voice of young Simba? For the Lion King, the original. Yeah, no, that was that was because the Jackson miniseries was the reason why I was even given the opportunity to um, audition for the Lion King. We were doing the Jacksons and we were performing uh, "Who's Loving You," but this particular day, most of the time we had like pre-recorded stuff. You know what I'm saying? That we would have to lip sync because you know for sound design, for sound later on, for mixing. You know what I mean? But this particular day, the director wanted, she was like, man, I just want it to be like authentic. And I want these guys to, I want this scene to feel like these guys are a real group, you know, that they're connected. And she was like, Jason, would you just be willing to like sing today? Like, oh, and then there was like a discrepancy as well because Joe Bet Music, which is Barry Gordy's music publishing company was in a dispute with the network or the family about Motown original records being used on the on the show. They hadn't worked out, I don't think they had worked out their agreement yet. So we were performing off of a Jackson 5 record, a live sh uh, recording, but it, we hadn't been given permission to use it so the production company was like all right as a precaution we'll just get our own version like jason can you sing it live and i was like yeah yeah i can sing it live like and like you sure because we're gonna be getting angles of this and you might be singing all day i was like man fuck it that's what i'm here to do it's all good so i ended up singing it live and unbeknownst to me at that time, um, and from what I was told much later on, Elton John was on the set that day. And Elton came up to 
my mom and was like, hey, is that your son? She was like, yeah. He said, listen, I'm listening to this kid sing. And I think he has a fantastic voice. And he may be perfect for this project that I'm currently working on with Disney. It's an animated thing called The Lion King. And he was like, you know, do you think Jason might be interested in in doing it? And so my mom is like, well, he going to get interested. He going to figure it out. So they ended up allowing me to audition because my mother asked me. She did ask me. She said, you know, do you want to do this? And I was like, oh, it's Disney. And see, I'm thinking, and this is just to show you how foolish I was back then. I was looking at myself as like being an R&B star. Like, I want to put out an R&B record. And my label at the time, Motown, what looking at a Disney kid potentially making an impact in the R&B market. Because that was really unheard of back then. Like, there weren't any Disney kids yet. They were, like, coming out, selling out arenas yet. So, Motown was like, oh, does he really want to do it? And so, I'm listening to the label like a fool because I want to be cool. And so, my mother told me, I'll never forget it. She said, Jason, let me tell you something. She said, ultimately, it's your decision. You do what you want to do. But if you don't do this, this would be one of the biggest mistakes of your career and possibly your life. So you really should think about this. Don't let peer pressure, don't let pressure of people that don't understand what it is that you're doing to dictate to you how you should go about living your life and your career. Mm. Thank God I listened to my mother. Because I said, nah, ma, you right. You know, tell them I'm going to do it. Sure enough. They flew us back out to Los Angeles. And then I started recording the uh, the Lion King. And that clip that people see on social media, when people started finding out that I was the singing voice behind Simba, that was the day that I recorded. It was tripped out because I had no idea that that footage had been like circulating around because that was that real session. And they had those cameras up because Disney was monitoring the movements of the actors that were singing the songs so that they can inject or incorporate those movements that we were doing as we were singing it into the role, into the animation. So like that, that footage was probably from Disney when they were recording. Cause I'll never forget. They had like one camera, like here's the mic in the middle. They had one camera to the left they had one camera to the right, and then they had one like directly in the middle, kind of looking over the shoulder of the the microphone, the top of the microphone. And when I asked them what was, because I had never been in a recording session like that where they had, um, you know, cameras and shit set up, and they were like, "No, we're gonna take some of your movements and we're gonna incorporate it, you know, into the character." And because they had shown me, I saw the storyboard art. They didn't even have like actual cells where they had the coloring and all of that they literally showed me like this is what Simba's gonna look like wow that's crazy so like the sketches of the of the characters like did, did they end up changing drastically when they like a very primitive version and just to be clear Jason provided the singing voice for young Simba in the original Lion King back in the day the singing voice yeah I'm the singing voice of young Simba yeah in the original Lion and I could be wrong Jason but that role was basically offered to you right it was offered to me initially, 
Um, but when we begin like the actual process, when they begin to like take me seriously as a consideration, they really wanted to make sure because after all, this is like Disney. So like I had to come to the studio. I forgot it was some studio in Burbank. I forgot the name of it, but it was like it was close to downtown Burbank. It was like down the street from Disney and all of that, like somewhere off of Olive, somewhere over there. Like you totally wouldn't think that anything was there. And then you go in and it's just, I mean, it was beautiful. Like, and it was nothing but, I think it was a Disney owned studio. Cause it was like nothing but Disney posters all over the place. But I mean, it was like gorgeous. And, um, I remember, I just really remember going in and they were like, okay, so you want to hear the song? Cause they had sent to rehearse for it, to rehearse for the session. Oh, and I don't think my mother still has this tape, but they sent a demo of the song and it was just like the piano and like some congas or something like that. You know, to where they did the like, and then there was this, um, it might've been Tim Rice's voice or it could have been a demo singer's voice, but they sang, I just can't wait to be king. And that was the reference vocal that they shot to me so that I could prepare for the session. So then when I came in and I did the session, they were like, okay, so you want to hear like the track you're going to be singing over? So I was like, yeah, let's like when I was rehearsing, right? They're like, no, 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 this is, this is what it is. And I'll never forget, man, they turned that shit up like mad loud and just imagine hearing like the track to I Just Can't Wait to Be King for like the first time ever in like ignorant levels. And they're sitting there like, and it's so crazy because they're sitting at the same time, they're playing it for me so I could get into the song, but they're also they're also watching me to gauge what my reaction is going to be, like as a kid. So the director's sitting there, and he's like, so what do you think? I was like, man, this is, man, it's incredible. I was like, man, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. So, um, you know, like any recording session, you know, they take you in there. They get your levels and stuff. You know, they adjust the mic and... You know, and they like you sing it down a couple of times so you can kind of get comfortable. And because it did take me, it took me a little while to get comfortable with it um, because of the, the cameras and just knowing the like the weight of the moment. Like I knew right then and there that this was some other shit because I like I said, I've been in recording sessions before, but I hadn't been in no recording session like that. And um they had Elton John on speakerphone because he couldn't make the session. I think he was like, I either want to say he was down in Atlanta because that's when he was living down there during that time. He was either in Atlanta or he was in London. But either which way, he wasn't there. But he was on the speakerphone. And he asked me, he said, what do you think, Jason? I was like, man, I'm just, I'm just really overwhelmed. Like, this is so cool. Like, I'm... I'm just ready to sing the song. So anyway, I got I eventually got into the song and uh like the um you know the latter part of the record where it's like the vamp where he's like everybody look left, everybody look right. Like they gave I remember them giving specific instructions to me about that, like how they wanted me to sing it and they were like, you know, actually turn your head, 
You know, like you're looking left and you're looking right. That way it'll come across that way in the mic. Sure enough, and like even the, uh, the uh, and I'm working on my roar, and I did the roar thing. That was one of their, that was one of their, you know, instructions. They were like, "Can you, can you roar? Can you like?" And I was like, "Yeah." So I executed everything to a T. Thank God, he, God had me at my best that day. I was like, I was so on fucking point that day. Hell yeah, because I remember like when I got out of the booth, they were like, "Man." Like one guy, the engineer, um, because I was a kid, so he wasn't he wasn't supposed to say it, but he was like one of those you could tell one of those old rock engineers. And when I came in the room and he looked at my mom, he was like, "That kid can fucking sing." Yeah. And I was like, "Oh shit!" My mom she started laughing. She was like, "Thank you." She said, "No, you did good, Jason." And they, you know, applauded me and everything. So after the session. Like, I stayed there for, like, another hour or so, and we listened to the song, and, oh, no, and we had to stay longer. That's what ended up happening. Even after the session, we had to stay, like, two hours longer because the director was trying to see if the contract between Disney and Jonathan Taylor Thomas had been finalized. Because as they were giving me instructions, after I finished the song, they said, hey, you ever did like a speaking voice in a movie? And I was like, in an animated film? And I was like, no, no. He said, well, you want to you try out for one? I was like, well, yeah, I just got through singing a song. Like, yeah, sure. So I auditioned for the voice, and they were like, man, he's perfect. Like, man, he's better than Jonathan Taylor Tom. Like, no bullshit, my right-handed guy. They were like, man, he's better than. So they were like, man, let's call, let's call his, um, Let's call Business Affairs at Disney and see if the deal is finalized, if it's done. And this is like when Jonathan Taylor Thomas was on Home Improvement, which, although Disney hadn't owned ABC by that time, they were still a Disney show, I believe. So um, um, they ended up calling back. They had to wait for the attorney to get back into the office because this was like during lunchtime. Then the attorney had to go through the documents. Again, this isn't like you know, fucking email era, you know what I mean? So this guy's literally having to go back and go through drafts and paperwork, and he called back, and he was like, no, no, we, we closed on the deal, like, two days ago. Like, they were like, but damn, he would have been perfect. But they were like, look, regardless of whatever, you're always going to be the singing voice of Simba. Like, this song, and the director told me right then and there, he's like, kid, I don't think you understand him, but this song is going to be the heart and soul of this movie. And he was like, and you just sang your little heart out today, man. Thank you so much. And I left with a, um, I left with a gift basket. They gave me a Lion King. It was their first piece of merch. It was just a regular crew neck sweater. And it just had the Lion King in the regular font. You know what I'm saying? That, you know, they have it in it. So I remember being so proud, like so, so proud of that. And um, we left to go back home to Chicago the next day. And so uh, I think it was like on a Wednesday, like a Tuesday or Wednesday, because I remember it was like in the middle of the school weekend. I was so proud of my uh, Lion King sweater that I wore it to school the next day. One of one. One on one, so I wore it to school. So I'm wearing it. Everybody like, man, the fuck is a Lion King, nigga? 
Nigga, if you don't take that corny shit off, man, here you go, man. This nigga goes out to L.A. and all of a sudden, he motherfucking wearing all types of weirdo shit. And I mean, they, kids are like going in, like, and, I, and I'm, I'm laughing at it because I'm looking back at it now because it's such a, you know, iconic film. And, and even those friends that had joked with me, because they weren't joking to like slam me. They were just, you know, they were joking me. We were having a good time. And, um... When we talk about it now, they like, man, remember when I was roasting your ass when you came to school with that fucking sweater on? Man, I had no idea what that shit was. I was like, yeah, I know. And it was the Lion King because everybody was like, why is he wearing that? Like, what's a Lion King? And I was telling people, I was like, man, it's Disney's new film. Because that's when I think like Aladdin was out. Yeah. And Aladdin was like the shit. And nothing, as far as anybody back then was concerned, could top Aladdin. That was just, that was it. That was it. So when I was telling about The Lion King, I was like, no, it's the new one. that They, they got a new one coming out. And the, the it's about a lion and the little lion. I'm singing a song. Nigga, you ain't singing a motherfucking, oh, man, they went in. Nigga, you ain't singing shit, man. You just coming back here making up stories. Nigga, you was at home sick. And then he gonna print up a little bullshit ass. Yo, man, that's dope that your, your, your friends and your people kept you grounded like that. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, no, nah, man. The one thing, and that, I mean, look, I love Chicago um, for two things. I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful city. We get a bad rap. Um, but, man, the people are awesome there. You know, like, people there will keep you... And I don't even like to use the term grounded, but people will 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 keep you open to the reality that this is a blessing. And like don't 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 take it for granted. Like, man, that's cool what you're doing. You know what I'm saying? Like when I go back home, that's what I hear. Like, man, that's cool what you're doing, Jason. We proud of you, man. You know, stay real, man, you know? Like when you can. You know, look out for your community or if you got a chance to lend your voice to say some real shit to to help the people and to inspire and, you know, to where these other black babies and, and all these other kids can see what you're doing, man, and they can look up to you, man. Do that shit, man. And that's what Chicago has always done for me. Like, I've never had a moment of, like, hate or a moment of, um, of bullshit where I said to myself, like, man, I got to leave the crib. These niggas is tripping. Nah, like Chicago has always shown me love. So I, I I give a lot of credit, first and foremost, to my Heavenly Father up above for in, in different ways keeping me humble. And secondly, my family, you know what I'm saying, for always reminding me um, of how I got my start and the sacrifices that were made for me. And it's a lot of it I attribute to my people back home in Chicago. Like, like man, you're not going to come home and pull up to a white castle and go in and order some cheeseburgers. And if somebody say, what's up to your ass, you're not going to play the Hollywood shit there. Because cause you will get the, oh, oh, what? Oh, well, fuck you. Then. Like, you'll get the, you know what I'm saying? But <laughs> if somebody go, hey, hey, dog. Hey, man, you Jason Weaver? Yeah, man, what's up? How you doing? Man, I knew that was you, man. What's going on, man? And all you got to do is just be cool. Cause it's a blessing, man. When people are taking time out, you know what I'm saying, out of their day, to turn your little bullshit on and watch your stupid ass perform, doing something that you feel great about, that that gives you fulfillment in your life, and somebody taking the time out to acknowledge that, man, it's nothing to say what's up to somebody real quick. And when you when you give that respect, 
And when you, it's like the saying goes, and it's kind of cliche nowadays, but it's true. You get what you put out. So if you putting out cool energy, man, that's what you're going to get back. Like, you know, when people, even if I see people that may recognize me, whatever, and they, you know, maybe staring at me or some shit, I had to tell them, be like, hey, man, what's up? Bro, I'm a human being. Like, I get it. You know what I'm saying? But, man, I'm Jason. Like, it's cool, man. I know you see me on the TV and shit. Thank you for supporting me. Don't feel shy to come up and say what's up. I know that there's some assholes out here that do take themselves seriously, but at least know with me, like, I'm on the level where I'm approachable and where you can talk to me. And most of the time when I'm talking to chicks and when I'm talking to dudes, you know, I especially had that conversation with dudes because you know how we are. Like, be like, man, I want to say what's up to that nigga, but... Man, he may be on some bullshit, you know what I mean? But usually when I, you know, just kind of reach out and let them know, like, nah, bro. Like, yeah, man, and it's kind of crazy because I've been with you a couple times where people, you know, walk up to you uh, and, you know, show you love. But I can tell that they're kind of a little bit starstruck or whatever you want to call it. You know, they're just a little bit uh, in awe thinking that, you know, they're you're in front of them. You know, and that goes with with anybody that, you know, famous or an actor, you know, let's keep the fame out of it because I know you're not really with that. But, you know, just the way you're an actor and you've been in so many films and movies, uh, you know, uh, your music career, all that stuff. So you've you've been significant to pop culture for the past, I'd say, 20 years, my brother. So, you know, it's understandable when people see you and they run up to you, uh, you know, they, they get starstruck sometimes. Especially because you're very inviting and you're very cool. No, and you know what? And it's not like I have any... I don't have a problem with that. Just just, just so we clear to it. Just so I can clarify. Like, I don't have a problem with that if people um, are excited or, you know, or people, when they run into you, they may be a little bit shocked and they're trying to, you know, figure out, you know, the, the way by which to approach you. And um, I totally get that. But I, I really like people to know that at the end of the day that, you know, if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't be where I'm at. So this is a give and take kind of relationship. Therefore, there's no need, you know what I'm saying, to view me in a way where you can't feel like, you know what I mean? I got I got my faults and I got my shit just like every other human being. You know what I'm saying? I get up out the bed, my breath's stinging, I got to wash my ass just like everybody else. But I also recognize that I have a, a talent from God that I've been blessed with. But I understand that in order for me to maintain that and continue to express it, that I need the support of the people around me, the people that work alongside with me, and the people that take the time out to support my shit. So when you view life, then when you view reality for what it is, then it puts things into perspective where you go, you know what, I'm really not that important in this equation. I'm just playing my part. You know what I'm saying? And it gives me a great deal of joy just bringing joy into people's lives. So... I want to keep that going, and in order to keep that going, man, you gotta, you gotta put out good shit. You know what I'm saying? Because, you know, God, God blesses when He knows that you're willing to be a blessing, or when it realizes that you're willing to be a blessing to others. Then that's when it continues to bless you, and that's all. That's all I'm trying to be on, man. Like no matter what I do, whether it's singing some shit, like I could get an opportunity to sing a hook on somebody's shit, and that shit could blow. Like, or I could get an opportunity where I do a film and. It makes a significant impact with somebody, but it's it's still an opportunity for me to have that, you know, exchange with people. You know what I'm saying? Right. And, absolutely. How do you feel about the Lion King now being remade? 
uh, you know, not to fucking make you feel old, you know, but, uh, you know, there's only a certain amount of films that actually get remade because they've, they're, they've been that significant and you're, you know, you're around to see the, the remake. I was the original, but it's like what I tell people all the time, man. You know, big shout out to J.D. McCrary, who is the new young Simba. He's the speaking voice and the singing voice. And I think he just did an unbelievable job. I think the whole cast, from Donald Glover to uh, to Beyonce, uh, to Chiwedo, to um, everybody involved, Seth Rogen. Uh, uh, yeah, like, I mean, everybody involved... Um, with the film, man, I, I just wish, I wish them all the best, and I encourage everybody to go out and see it, um, when it comes out, because it's, it's essentially going to be, you know, entertainment for a new generation, you know what I'm saying, of Lion King fans, and, you know, just to, just to know that I've been a part of that iconic legacy, and been able to contribute, um, in my own way during my time, like, I'm really just blessed and fortunate to be able to say that, and, um, you know, and I'm I'm thankful to God for that. And when when you when you've been able to experience the kind of blessings that that I experience or that I have experienced and continue to experience in my life, like like man, I just don't take nothing for granted, man. Like even with that, I may not have some direct involvement with this version now, but it's still a blessing, you know. Because you know, even when people now on social media, you, they'll refer back to the original from time to time based on the nostalgic aspect you know what i'm saying and just to just to salute and pay respect and all that like that's cool shit yeah man that's real cool because you know anyone from like the age of 30 to 40 45 uh, you know we're now able to take our kids to watch this and you know let them know or show them the original one with your voice as well and you know i mean that's that kind of shit is kind of cool it's dope and it keeps it going. And, you know, again, when you know that you're a part of something like that, um, you know, it's like playing on a football team, right? Like playing on a, like playing on a, the Packers or some shit. Like, oh, no, I don't want to use that because I'm from Chicago. Fuck the Packers. It's like playing, a, like playing the Cowboys or something, like where you have these different eras. No, better, better analogy. Like playing at, like on the Lakers. You know, you had the Showtime Lakers. You had Magic, you had A.C. Green and Kareem and, you know, and those boys were the shit, you know. Byron Scott, fucking, uh, um, what's my man? Um, uh, uh, he's the guard. Um, uh, James Worthy. Jesus. That's, that's ridiculous. I couldn't remember James Worthy's name. Excuse me, Mr. Worthy. But, nah, you know, legends like James Worthy. But you had all of those legends on one squad, known as the Showtime Lakers. But then you had an era next that came up where you had Shaq and Kobe and Robert Ory and you know what I mean? So I, I use that as an analogy to kind of, you know, how I feel about the new Lion King. Like, man, I was part of the Showtime Lakers and man, we fucking won the chip and it was great and we enjoyed that moment together. But, you know, now Kobe's over here, you know, with his crew and they they putting up points, they getting chips. Right. And, you know, you know this as well as I do that, you know, when people are going to leave the theater and they're going to immediately want to go back for nostalgia pur purposes to watch the original one and play the original soundtrack. No, and, and, and I encourage them, go out and buy the original soundtrack again too. Like, man, you know, go, go ape shit crazy if you want. I mean, 
because it's all it's all expression it's all art and it's all coming from you know amazingly talented artists who've had a unique opportunity to be a part of an extraordinary project and are performing at their highest you know what i mean and when when you when you're able to to um witness a body of work like that or listen to a body of work like that whether it's from one generation to the next you just witnessing greatness man you know so you just take it all in and you appreciate it for what it is at that time and amen my bro and so at this point in your journey jason let's get into you know one of my favorite sitcoms of all time uh where i used to pick up game on dressing and being cool and shit which was smart guy smart guy came um by this time, I was signed to Motown Records. Um, for most, there are a lot of people out there that know that, but maybe not as many that are familiar with my acting career. But um, I was a signed artist to Motown Records back in 90, 94, 95. Yeah, yeah, like 94, 95, and I think my record came out in 96. Anyway, um, it was a record called Love Ambition, and uh, it experienced a moderate success uh, in the R&B world, and it's still considered to be like a classic Steppers record in my hometown of Chicago today. Shout out once again to my hometown for always holding me the fuck down. I love y'all. Um, but while I was doing my thing with Motown, a transition had taken place where Gerald Busby, God rest his soul, had stepped down as uh, the chairman, and Andre Harrell took over his position um, at Motown. And so um, when Andre took over Motown, like, they really didn't get, and this is no disrespect, this is just a true story, they really didn't get kind of like what my angle was as an artist or what my direction was as an artist. They were, they were having a hard time connecting with me. Um, and I was having a pretty difficult time connecting with them in a sense of just trying to get them to kind of believe in, you know, my talent and the audience that I could serve. Cause again, this was like pre Miley Cyrus and pre Disney and all of that. So you know, I was really looked at as a Disney kid that they didn't know what to do with. And it was just like, well, he's here by default because he was here when Gerald was here. So what ended up happening was is um, because I kind of knew that I didn't really want to continue on as an artist at that label. I just kind of began auditioning more. Um with television shows and then because I was managed by Suzanne DePass at that time um she made me aware of a show that she was executive producing and she was like look I can't just shoo you in but you need to audition for it and I'm I guarantee you that if you get to you know producers call back like we'll go to bat for you with the network and so sure enough I did this is when I was like living in New York when I was signed to Motown and audition for the role and sure enough I got a producer's call back and they flew me out here to Los Angeles. I was right back up at no. I did the I did the uh the network uh the network audition at the Warner Ranch over there off of Hollywood Way. That's when that was like the WB. I, when they first said we're going to Warner Brothers, I'm thinking we about to go to the big lot. But come to find out and they took us to the Warner Ranch. They had like the WB. Remember when they had the frog and shit? 
and they did the spots and the the lights. So it was like the evening when my audition was scheduled, and they were shooting a couple of those spots with like the Wayans brothers and a couple other people. So I literally saw them shooting the shit as I'm walking to my network audition. I was like, wow, this is cool. And so I go in and do the network audition. To make a long story short, um, I got offered the role. Disney offered me the role. My cousin, uh, Kevin, Kevin Harrell, uh, Kook's brother, was on the road with me, um, you know, like as my guardian, my, my guardian and uh, chaperone. Because I was just at an age, you know, I was coming into my manhood. How old were you? I was like 16, 17. And my mother recognized that, you know, I was way more mature for my age than I was. And she was like, nah, he need to be, a man need to be around him to keep him fucking grounded and to allow him to come into his manhood. You know what I'm saying? So credit mom for that. I, that was hella cool because that helped me out tremendously. Having a man help me sort through what I was experiencing during that time because... I mean, during that time, I'm like, I'm in the club. I'm hanging with, like, Biggie Smalls and Puff. Like, this is when I first started, like, smoking technically. Like, so I'm smoking blunts. Like, you know what I mean? I'm like. You got any Biggie stories from back in the day? Oh, yeah. No, this was during the time when I was living in New York, when I was an artist on Motown. And pretty much, like, we would run into the Bad Boy crew all the time because, all of those guys had literally just had splintered off from each other as of that recently when Uptown, you know what I'm saying, had folded or whatever, or was bought out by MCA or whatever. So you had people that had gone with Puff to Bad Boy, and you had people that had stayed with Andre and transitioned with him over to Motown. So my A&R director and good friend, my big brother, Chuck Bone, um who really took great care of me during that time that I was growing up and, and living in New York. Um, he and Puff are like best friends. Like they went to high school together, played football together, um, you know, still know each other to this day. Like they're like two peas in a pod. Like, and Chuck is a great guy. And so when Chuck became my A&R, it, it just naturally he was like, well, first of all, he's like, I got to, we got to get you like some vibes going on here. Cause I was a kid. So I was very innocent. I was very Disney, you know what I'm saying? And they knew that in order for me to, or they felt, I'm not going to say they knew they felt at that time that it was important for me. If I was going to be taken seriously as an R and B artist to have some kind of edge or to have, you know, to have a feel for like what the street is going to be checking for. So that, that was accurate. And so they put charge, they put Chuck in charge of that on behalf of my, my project. And Chuck was a great A&R because he did exactly that. He took me to go buy my first pair of Tim's off of 145th street in Spanish Harlem and got me my first like North face jacket and, you know, then took me to the Apollo for the first time ever in my life. And you know, took me to 125th Street and, you know, and Lenox and showed me, like, all of this shit. And then he would take me, like, back downtown. And he'd be like, we going to the club. <laughs> so, so I'm like, like, 15. I'm like, no, nah, no, nah, let me not go that far. I'm like 16 years old. 
and this dude really has me in a club. Like, I'm hanging in clubs like the tunnel, SO. Like, like I'm like I'm hanging, like I'm hanging out, and everywhere we hang out, it's like Bad Boy, like Puff is the king of New York, and, and I mean literally Bad Boy is an army, like their street team was like 50, 60 niggas, and Bad Boy coach jackets with picket signs and bullhorns, megaphones, yelling out Bad Boy, like every club, every hot club, they were in front. As Puff is walking in, looking like a king. Like, it was amazing. So we would see these guys around. And the first time I met Big, well, I'll, t- I'll tell that story. But the first time I met Big was at Sony Studios off of 57th Street. And it was at the Escape um, sophomore listening party for their sophomore album, Off the Hook. And they had a... Um, listening party at uh, Sony Studios in their soundstage area. And they were going to perform there. And so me and my mother and my Aunt Anne, Tricky's mother, we all flew up to New York. No, yeah. Yeah, we all flew. We had all been flown to New York because I was performing in Central Park at the Pocahontas premiere. And I performed I Just Can't Wait to Be King. And, like, Bill Clinton was there and everything. That shit was nuts. 100,000 people in the middle of Central Park in a great lawn in Central Park. 100,000 people. It was fucking crazy. But anyway, that was for Disney. They premiered Pocahontas, the movie, in Central Park. Never forget it. It was was insane. So, after my performance, Chuck, who had just become my A&R, we had just been introduced, he wanted to hang with me and get a feel for me and and also to show my mother that I was going to be in good hands when I eventually made it to New York and all of that. So he said, I'm going to take you guys to um, Escape's listening party. He's like, Jason, you like Escape? I was like, man, I love Escape. I was like, man, they knew single was dope. I was like, yeah, I want to go. So we go in the, uh, we go in the fucking, uh, in the soundstage and I'll never forget Biggie is sitting in a chair like this. I shit you not. Like a tiny chair. And he's, you know, big, you know. And he's sitting in a corner in the in the entrance, the front entrance of the soundstage area where the party and where they're going to p- perform. He's literally right at the entrance. Smoking mad weed. I'm talking about, I'm talking about him and Little C's like Junior Mafia was surrounding him. These cats are passing blunts back and forth to one another to where in that section, it's just a cloud of smoke. Just It just takes over that whole area of the room. So me and my mother and my aunt had nowhere else to go because it was so crowded. So we're literally next to Biggie Smalls. Like, true story. My right hand of God. I'm here in the middle. My Aunt Ann is right here. And my mother is right here, literally right next to Biggie as he's sitting in the chair, he's like, hey, how you doing, ma'am? She was like, hey, how you? and she she was like, you that guy that got that song, Big Papa, because that's when Big Papa first, like, it wasn't like when it first popped off, but it was like, it was at its heat. It was at its fucking crescendo. Like, it was, like, Big was the man. But that was before, you know, he became the big superstar, but we knew who he was. 
So he's like, I'm sorry, this isn't bothering you, is it? She was like, no, no, do your thing, whatever. So fast forward, escape. They perform. We leave. We walking down 57th Street, going back to the hotel because we were staying at the Four Seasons. And man, my mom and my aunt was high than a motherfucker. To this day, we laugh about it. I was like, man, remember that time that Biggie got y'all high? Like, Biggie been blowing so much weed that he just had them. They was like, they caught a contact high. So the next time, fast forward, and I'll keep it short. The next time I saw Big was in the tunnel. I was 17. We in the tunnel. And the tunnel was like the shit. Like, the tunnel club was like Studio 54 for hip-hop. It was, it, was, it was crazy. It was insane. Like, it was fucking unisex bathrooms. Really? Yeah, like, I'm talking about, like, yeah, it would go down in there. Like, it was, it was crazy. And I'll never forget Chuck Bone, because I went in there with him. And he's like, yo... You want to go get a drink? He was like, man, loosen, like, loosen up. Because I'm in there. I'm smiling from ear to ear. He's like, yo, man, stop fucking smiling. We in the tunnel, man. Like, you look like a fucking kid in here, man. Stop smiling. So I'm like, oh, my bad, my bad, my bad. So I'm walking around. I'm trying to act like I've been there before. You know what I'm saying? Chuck like, yo, you want a drink? You, want, you ever had a drink? I was like, yeah, I had a drink before. He's like, what you drink, nigga? I'm like, man, you know, like little wine coolers. He's like, I'm not getting you a wine cooler. He's like, if you want a drink, I'll get you a drink. He said, why don't we do this? I'm going to start you off on a Long Island iced tea. He's like, you ever had a Long Island iced tea? I was like, no, nah, I never had it. He's like, all right, it's fruity enough for you, and it'll get your little ass there where you can chill out. So, so I was like, oh, and let me preface this. Let me say this. I'm not, I'm not advocating, you know what I'm saying, like, like teenage drinking, none of that, and neither did Chuck. We were just in the moment, and I was mature enough to handle it and be in the moment. I was, I was just in the moment. So, anyway, I'm drinking a Long Island iced tea. I'm feeling kind of nice at this point. And I'll never forget. I, like, look past a sea of people. And I just see this big, dark figure in the corner with, like, a full-length black mink on. Like, a full-length, big, puffy joint with the... I'm talking about that shit look just luxurious. And in the middle of it... It was like black because he had on a black sweater, but you just saw two Jesus piece chains like dangling and glistening. And then I finally saw Big's face and Big had two bottles of Dom in each arm, double fisted with a chick under each arm. And he was dancing and he was taking swigs of Dom from one hand and dancing a little bit and then taking swigs of Dom from the next hand. And the two chicks was like rubbing on his belly and rubbing on his chain and rubbing on the fur. And I just thought that was the flyest shit ever because it looked like a movie. Like imagine the club in New York, you know, at its peak in hip hop during the golden era. It's like 1.32 a.m. in a club. The hottest record, whatever that is, is being played. The ambiance, the lighting. The chicks, the vibe in there is crazy. It's like wall-to-wall stacked with people. It's nuts. And you just see Biggie Smalls in the corner next to the speaker with two chicks and two bottles of Dom, full-length make, two Jesus pieces, 
cool as a fucking cucumber, and it was hot in that club, but this nigga was not sweating. Which which is surprising to me because when you see in interviews now, like he always has a towel shit. But that one particular night, I don't know what it was, but he was cool as a cucumber. And like, I was so enamored. I was so caught up with the way the scene looked that Chuck saw me. He was like, yo, you know Big? I was like, I, I met him one time, but I, I, I don't know. He's like, man, come on over here, man. Let me introduce you to Big. So I'm like, you know him? He's like, what? Man, Big is my nigga. What? Come here. So Chuck takes me right over there. Yo, Big, what up? And I'll never forget, as soon as Big saw Chuck's face, he was like, Chuck, what up, nigga? He took his arms off of the girls, gave him a hug. So by this time, I'm looking at Chuck Bone like, like he's a god. I'm like, oh, my God. This, this nigga, I got the right A&R. This guy, he, I mean, he, I just met Puff. He busted Robs and he said, what's up to him now, Biggie? Like, oh, my God. And so Chuck goes, yo, man, it's my artist I got over at Motown, man. We gonna, I know you hot right now, Big, but I may need you in a minute, man. We may need a 16, man. And I'll never forget, Big was like, yo, just hit me, Chuck. Just hit me, man. You know how Puff be about that. But for you, I, I'll, I'll try to work something out for you. So I'm sitting there like, ah, ah. I mean, of course, it never happened. But just the fact that, you know, having that kind of interaction and, it was like, it was a magical moment, man, like that, that era. So, oh, fast forward. I just, I figured after that, and I really wasn't like getting anywhere with Motown. Um, I asked for a release. Like I, I expressed, you know, to Suzanne DePass, my manager at the time, kind of like my frustrations. And it was, I didn't have any frustration with like Chuck or anybody like that. Like he was great. I just thought that, you know, the powers that be up at the label just didn't really, yeah, and then I knew that, you know, I had this show, and I knew that was going to give me an opportunity to, like, come back out to L.A. and kind of just focus on acting. I was going to earn some great money, and then I didn't have to worry about being in a situation or being at a label where they really didn't really want me there in the first place. So to make it easier on everybody, um, you know, I talked to Suzanne about it, and she in turn reached out to Mr. Clarence Avant and explained, you know, my situation. And um, Mr. Avant was gracious enough to to grant me a um, a pass, a release to get off the label, and um, I was able to get off the label, with, you know, with no issues. And um, that was a blessing. Like I owe that too to Mr. Avant. Like shout out to Clarence Avant because I was really, and shout out to Suzanne the Pass too. Because it was really her that, like, convinced Mr. Avant, you know, to let me go. Because she saw where I was kind of, I wasn't miserable, but I wasn't happy. And I just felt like nobody, you know, with the exception of Chuck and my homeboy Bobby Springsteen and maybe a couple other the A&Rs up there, um, you know, with the exception of those couple guys, like, nobody really was really checking for me over there. And I just felt like... You got lost in the mix. Yeah, I was just like, well, instead of just being up here... And going through the motions and eventually getting it to the point where these guys will want to drop me, then I'd rather just like go and earn this fucking 50000 a week real quick and be on TV and do some cool shit and work at this. And as far as the role for a smart guy, how did you get that? Did you audition or how did that come about? I got the role, yeah, because after after audition for the for the um, network audition, um, 
at, at Warner Brothers. Then I got the role. And then we did like our first season at Sunset Gower. That's when I came back out here to LA. We did our first season here. And then our second and third season is when we were over at Disney. Because we're, we're actually a Disney show. It's just that WB presented it on their network. But that's a Disney-owned show. I think we did like, I want to say I think we did three. I think we did three, but just, just to be safe and correct, we may have only done two. But I vaguely remember um, doing like at least one or two episodes of a third season before we were informed that we were um, canceled. And how was the chemistry between you and Omar and the rest of the cast, more particularly with Omar Gooding? No, I knew, I knew Omar. I've known Omar since um, he and I were both like maybe 10 or 11 years old because he was on Wild and Crazy Kids. One of my favorite shows of all time. I had just done my first film and we came and I was brought out here to California to do this. Um, no, no. I was out here for the premiere of Long Walk Home. And while I was out here, I was recruited to be a part of this kids ensemble choir um, recognizing Earth Day. So it was like child, it was a child stars version of We Are the World, but for Earth Day. And so they gathered all of these kids that were on TV. So they had Anna Klumsky from My Girl, and they had like, you know, Macaulay Culkin, and they had. Um, you know, all those kids back then and Omar was there from Wild and Crazy Kids and that's when he and I met because I was out here for the premiere and we hit it off and then we would see each other at auditions. Like if I came out here to do an audition for something um, and, and it was like a network audition, Omar nine times out of ten was like my competition. So we would just always see each other at auditions because we performed at that high level as kids. So it was he and I were always in the mix for like some of the same roles or whatever the case may be. Man, we just had a mutual respect and still have a mutual respect and love for one another as people first and foremost. But we also, you know, respect one another's um, God-given talent and ability. And um, when we finally got the opportunity to work on Smart Guy together, I mean, that was the chemistry was like that because he and I were like that prior. You know what I mean? So it just kind of it just kind of worked out and then even professionally because we had never worked before prior to smart guy we were just friends but when we started working together we noticed that we had the same kind of pacing same kind of timing we kind of thought the same we dissected scenes and some you know different things the same we we ran the same kind of playbook you know what i mean as far as our approach to the craft so um, when I took note of that and he took note of that with me, you know, we just gelled really well on Smart Guy. And it was it was a lot of fun. Dope. It was it was obvious that your chemistry was always there, almost like if it was like real life, you know, especially as me watching it as a kid. Yeah. But no, we and we were everybody on that set. Like, you know, me, Essence, Taj, like uh, JJ, like all of us, we were we were actually like really friends. Like it wasn't a thing where we were um you know, just bullshitting and making it up and acting like those are people that, you know, to this day, like when I see Essence, I give her a big hug and, you know, I, I regard her as a sister that I regarded her as being like back in the day when I see Taj or when he and I correspond on social media, like 
it's always a genuine level of engagement that we have and there's a genuine love and respect um, and mutual respect that we have for one another. Same with John Marshall Jones. Like, um, when he was, like, putting out his record, he put out, like, a little independent record called, the, like, the, the Booty Song or something, something wacky, something crazy that he was doing. I don't know what the fuck it was, but it was something that he was doing associated with asses. Anyway, he... uh. He put out a record and he was like, man, you know, can you repost it for me and retweet it? And which I did. So it's like, you know, um, no, everybody, everybody still hangs out. Me and Omar to this day, we went straight back into it. Like, you know, like we did years ago. And even now, when I came back on this recent trip, he was like, nigga, you in town? Like you here? Like I'm here. I'm come through the crib. Came through. We looked at the uh, finals together, you know, played with his son and hung out with him and his wife and you know we ate and laughed and picked up right where we left off you know even when I first uh when I first went back to Atlanta so no nah, I've it, look I've been fortunate like that with pretty much everybody that I've worked with there there have been people that I've continued to stay in contact with the ATL crew I still keep in contact with the majority that I just saw a tip um a few days ago at um at a Gary V event um, here in West Hollywood uh, during the ESPY Awards, because unbeknownst to me, Gary V has a, a sports agency that's really doing well. It's dope as fuck. Uh, uh, what's it? Vander? Vander? Yeah, but you know, the answer, the motivational speaker, the CEO, the no, he's a great guy, and I actually got a chance to to meet him um, at his event. Um, but yeah, like I reconnected, you know, with Tip there and we talked and, you know, whenever I see, uh, Jackie Long or, you know, if I run into Lauren, I, I reached out to Lauren, like, you know, after, um, Nip had gotten killed and, you know, just reached out to her and sent her a message to let her know that, you know, she's in my prayers. And now I've been really fortunate to, to still be able to have relationships um with all of these people that i've that i've worked with so. right definitely because chemistry is something you can't fake man there's no there's no way around that it's very obvious uh, with that being said jason let me let me touch on a couple more points uh along your journey one call away the chingy record game changer man you know you know how i feel about that it was record. it was god really i was out here shooting the lady killers i was shooting a film with the Coen brothers and Tom Hanks called the lady killers. Um, and I was only here for a week because my role was relatively small in that. So I was only scheduled to be out here in LA for a week because I was living, that's when I was still in Atlanta. My son, you know, my son was still young. He was still a baby. Um, and so when I was out here, I ran into my homeboy, Poon Daddy. Poon Daddy, at the time, was an A&R at DTP, that Disturbing the Peace. But prior to that, Poon was on the radio with Ludacris and Lala. And it was called the Poon Daddy and Chris Lover Lover Show with Lala or something like that. And they came on in the evenings on Hot 97 in Atlanta. Really popular radio show. Um, fast forward, 
me and Poon run into each other randomly. I want to almost say at the Beverly Center or something like that out here. He's like, man, you out here? I'm like, yeah, I'm shooting this movie. He was like, man, what you doing tonight? I was like, nothing. I'm probably going to get into bed, you know what I'm saying, so I can get up and go to work in the morning. He was like, dude, man, you know that dude, Chingy, the, the dude that, because out here they were playing right there. Like on Power 106, they were just playing the shit out of that record. So I was like, oh, you mean the right third nigga? Like, he's like, yeah, man, you know, that's our artist at Disturbing the Peace. I was like, oh, okay, cool. I was like, what about him? He was like, man, look, man, we got this song. Um, it's going to be like his third single, but, man, it's a hit. But we can't find the right vocalist for it. And he was like, the label... Um, the label wants us to put like Marcus Houston on it or, you know, they want us to put Houston. They had another artist at Capitol named Houston. And uh, then they wanted a Marion. They were trying to recruit like every young male artist at that time who was relevant and doing anything. So, but he was like, man, he was like, nigga, I think you can pull that shit off. And I was like, what makes you think that I could pull it off? He was like, first of all, nigga, I know you can sing. Number two, you ain't had, like, a breakout hit record like that yet. And this would be a good look for you, man. Like, man, you need to come through and just at least meet this nigga. He's like, man, just come through the studio and come meet this nigga. So, sure enough, I met him and Cheney at the old Larrabee West right here. Right off of Santa Monica Boulevard. Like, literally in walking distance from this place. And me and my my big homeboy from Compton, Big Moan. Shout out to Big Moan and Kelly Park, all my folks over there. Um, me and Big Moan walked into to Chingy's session, and he was, like, playing pool in the little, you know, lounge area there. So, um, Poon introduced us, and then Poon pulled me to the side. He was like, man, just talk to this nigga for a minute, man, you know, just get a feel for him. And he's like, man, if you cool, and if, you know, y'all kind of hit it off. You know, man, I'm going to set up the session so you can go in and knock it out. So I was like, all right. So me and Chingy ended up playing a game of pool. You know, he's from St. Louis. I'm from Chicago. So we talked about that. And then we kind of hit it off. Like, we really, like, didn't talk that much because he had, he had a chick in there when she was bad, too. To, to this day, I was, boy, Chingy had him a bad one with him that night, boy. He had him a bad one, so... Um, he was focused on her, rightfully so. So, um, he goes and, um, after he and I play pool, he goes back into, into the A room and finishes working on whatever he was working on for the album. And then Poon pulled me to the side. He was like, okay, I think you niggas is cool. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to set up the session. And when I get it set up, you know, I'm just going to call you. He's like, so what's your schedule looking like for the next couple of days? I was like, well, man, tomorrow I'm on set. And I think the following day, I'm on set with these guys. He's like, well, man, I'm trying to get this done in the next couple of days. So, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, what what we going to do? I was like, well, man, let's just kind of, you know, keep each other posted. Because um, I may be able to, like, come through my lunch break or something and, you know, try to do something. I don't know if that'll be enough time, but we'll see. So, the next day, I'm working off of um, the scene that I'm shooting in the Lady Killers that day is... In Highland Park off of like Figueroa in York. Like like Figueroa and fucking 52nd Street or something like that. Like right in the middle of Highland Park. At this little donut, like donut shit. It was like a little 
was like a little shop or something where we were shooting at that day. And my scene was supposed to come up next, but what ended up happening was um, Joel and Ethan ended up like fucking up with some kind of shot which they had to get. They damn near had to reshoot the whole scene over again. So I got, um, you know, I got signed out. I got released for that day. And it was like maybe 2, 3 o'clock. So Poon calls me. He's like, man, what you doing? Man, you on set? I was like, yeah. He's like, dude, I got the session set up, man, but... <clears throat> It's at Enterprise. They can only do it for like four, though. Man, can you think you can get here by four? I was like, man, come to find out. I just got released from work, man. Like, I just signed out. He's like, man, shoot over to Burbank, man. I'm going to send a car. I'm going to send a car service. Shoot over to Enterprise real quick, man. Come knock this session out. Sure enough, he sends a car service. Takes me from Highland Park to Burbank. Pulled up over at Enterprise. Sang the record down like six, seven times. And then after we got done, after I sang it down, he was like, all right. He was like, man, you can go. We just going to comp the vocal. He's like, I think we got it. He's like, nigga, you did some shit in the record. That's like, <clears throat> he's like, that shit crazy. I heard some shit in there, man. You did something. It was dope. We going to put that in there. I was like, so you just don't want me to just sing it down and we just splice it? He was like, nah, nigga. We gonna comp the vocal and that's that. Cause I forgot who the engineer was, but this thing had already started comping and like getting the vocal together right then and there. So I was like, all right. So I left. I left Burbank. Um, went back to my hotel, and then I stayed in LA for a while. But eventually, I went back to Atlanta. So like a month later, Poon calls me. He's like, hey man, what what you doing? I was like, no, Poon, what's going on? Nigga, you gonna be ready to shoot this video in like the next two months once this nigga come off this promo tour? <clears throat> I was like, what you mean? He was like, dog, they taking the song. Like, bro, you on that record. He was like, dude, we tested it. Different focus groups. Because they were they were hating on me at Atlantic. Like, um, when, that's when Wendy Goldstein was up there. And they were like, they were, they were hating on me at the label because they wanted their artists to be on the, on the record. So, you know, and I was, I was unsigned, and you were <clears throat> but they didn't care. I mean, people in the music business, they didn't care about that shit. Like they have this, a lot of people in music <clears throat> have this kind of like elitist outlook when it comes from people in acting, you know what I'm saying? Making the transition from film to singing, like. They be trying to downplay our shit like we're not authentic just because, <clears throat> pardon me, we didn't start off, you know, singing or that's not what we're particularly known for. So when you try to enter in into the music industry, despite the fact that I've been singing in church all my life, despite the fact, you know what I'm saying, that I've been on Motown Records at one point or another, despite the fact that I played, you know, sang the role of Young Sim and the Lion King, like, they were really on some shit, like, nah, he's cool, but we think, like, we need, like, some star power behind the song, and, you know, like, we can get a Marion, or we can get, you know, like, Marcus Houston's version is cool, or, they, and, and mind you, I'm not downing those guys, because they're all friends of mine, you know what I'm saying, a Marion, Marcus, like, 
I've known those guys for a long time, so it's it's no diss to them in any way whatsoever. But um, you know, that's what they were on. So when he told me that, I was like, man, fuck them niggas, man. Like I don't even want to like tell them to put so and so on the song. Then like he was like, nah, dog, you don't understand. Like the focus group wants you on the record. Like the kids want you on the record. Like it's coming out. So nigga, you gonna do this video? And I'm going to let you know when it's popping off. And all you got to do is just show up. So, one day, I'm back home in Atlanta. And I'm listening to Hot 97 or Hot 107. And the shit come on the radio. And then, because they doing like a, you know, diss it or pick it. One of, you know how the radio station do that shit. So, everybody on the radio like, man, that shit jamming. Man, that shit a hit, man. We fuck with that. So, the record took on a life of its own. So then Poon called me like a week later, like, man, we finna shoot the video now. The label just gave us the money. Man, what you doing? What you doing today? I was like, what am I doing today? I was like, you don't even give me a heads up. He was like, nah, bro, we literally, like, the label just threw us the money. Nigga, we going all around Atlanta. We got Eric White. He got, like, two, he had two days out of his schedule. Man, we can get this nigga, man. Let's just go shoot this shit. Meet us over here. I think we, I think we were at Herndon Homes. We were at one of them projects over there that they tur- tore down. Yeah, we were like in Herndon or something, but we were like that gate that I was leaning on. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. was a project fence. Like the projects was behind that shit. Cause the whole projects was out looking at the shit. Yeah. And I'll never forget, like, because it was so impromptu, they didn't have wardrobe for me. Like, they had like racks upon racks upon racks of clothes for Chingy. Like this nigga had everything in a fucking trailer. So when I go in there, you know what I'm saying, to get fitted for something, the lady's like, they didn't tell me, like, you were coming, like, I was like, yeah, it's all really impromptu, but I had on that green coat, like, that's my coat, that's my jacket. So you came? I had that coat on, she was like, but this is fly as fuck, though, like, nigga, just wear that. I was like, are you sure? She was like, no, dude, that's dope. She said, dude, put the earpiece in your ear, lean up against the fence, and wear the jacket, and that's it. And that was it. And that you was kind of... like a Bluetooth thing? It was like a... Um, it was like when... Uh, like when... Because uh, Usher had it. Remember when... Uh, remember when the flip phones... Or those, those phones, the two-way phones? Yeah. And uh, I want to say like Sprint had one or something. No. It was, the, it was the star... The star phone. Whatever that shit was. The silver one. No, it was the it was the sidekick. That's what it was called. It was called the sidekick. I don't know if it was from Sprint or T-Mobile. T-Mobile is the T-Mobile sidekick, and the T-Mobile sidekick had the fucking earpiece. That's where they first had the earpiece attached. So I had one of those. Man, she was like, just just act like you on your sidekick talking on the phone. Give me a call when you want to come roll with me. And I was like, and then Eric White, the director, was like, that's exactly what we doing. And that's how that shit happened. Just like that. Damn. That's exactly how that shit happened. Like, nah, man, I've, I've been in some, like, really... Was ex- record, it was a big record. But, you know, it was so... It was crazy. And I said this... I've, I've made it known in a couple other interviews. Like, unfortunately, man, they made it, like, really, really hard. Not Chingy. Um, he was great. He's always been great. But the label, I don't know if it was Capital or if it was Disturbing the Peace... But, man, they made it a point not to give me, 
Like I had to fight for credit for the record. When the record first came out, <clears throat> they d- didn't even have my name included, like featuring, you know, Jay Weave or whatever. When the video came out on BET, it was just Chingy, one call away. Like I had to raise hell. Like, yeah, it was like a whole. Okay, I remember seeing your, your name on the- Yeah, that was after, that was after I had my attorney call him like, yo, like, what the fuck? Like, and, and then I had to, um, I had to talk to Ludacris about that shit too. Like I went up to Def Jam South when they had that office off of West Peachtree. And that's when he was like one of the head executives up there with fucking Scarface. And that was when that when that record was out. And I was like, yo, Chris, why y'all like why y'all shitting on me like that, man? Like it's actually making me look bad out here because everybody knows that I'm on the record and like, you know, when the record comes out. Or when you see it on BET or whatever, whatever, it's just like Chingy's just getting all the credit for it. And I get it. Like, it's his record, but I contributed just as much. Like, and on top of that, like, nigga, we friends. Like, don't, like, I know y'all. Don't do me like that. So after, um, you know, I raised hell with Chris about it, then I guess that's when he went back to Shaka Zulu or whatever. And then Shaka did whatever. And, you know, he went back and, yeah, and then they fixed everything. But I had to, you know, I had to go to Chris and, um, and raise hell about it, you know what I mean? And then Poon had to, you know, kind of stand with me and vouch for me, like, yeah, man, don't do our homie like that. Like, you know, like, Jason, cool. No, and and you know what? And I appreciate it, and I appreciate you saying that, and I appreciate the people that supported the record and that fuck with the record because, you know, I I was blessed to be a part of it, and I'm thankful to God that I got the opportunity, um, you know, to be a part of it. I wish... I would have been able to like take advantage of it a lot more as as far as like allowing it to be able to raise my profile as an artist, but I was never like given that opportunity, unfortunately. And nobody was really um nobody was really enthusiastic about including me or like allowing me to be a part of the success of the record. With the, with the exception with the exception of Chingy, like when me and Chingy talk about it years later um when we ran into each other in the street or at an audition and he asked me he was like man why was it a thing where like you know you never came and performed with me on the song or never went on the road not with once. me you never, you never, not you once know. not once like well that record was like in his heyday and it was because was allegedly from or supposedly from what he was telling me when he was inquiring about it from the label they were telling him that I was saying I was too busy to take part in it. And, I mean, you know, unbeknownst to Chingy, like, I was just kind of waiting on them to call me to let me know, like, you know, because I'm just thinking automatically just off of the strength, out of respect, like, you know, they're going to reach out to you like, hey, nigga, I'm going on 106. But he was a kid at the time, so he really didn't have the power or authority to do it like that. He was leaving a lot of that shit up to the label. Hence, that's how he was you know, going through the troubles he later went with them where he wasn't getting his money. Absolutely. He was really just allowing, you know, DTP and Capital to kind of do his, do their thing. Yeah. And, you know, in turn, things like that happened, you know, coupled with, I guess, a couple other things he dealt with with them and the label. But, um, you know, nonetheless, um, I'm thankful to have been a part of that. And, you know, my thing is anytime a situation like that occurs, where you can easily view it as an injustice or you can view it as something unfortunate that happened. I think the redemptive aspect or factor of it is like when you get people in the street 
that tell you like, yo, man, you made that record for me. Or you get people on social media like, hey, man, I like that song because I fucking dug that hook. That's where you get like, that's where you like, you know what? That's all I fucking need, man. Like, you know, if the label didn't get it or whatever happened at the time happened, that's unfortunate. But you know what? The people know. And that's who I made it for. That's the reason why I did it was to entertain people. So, hey, as long as the people are entertained and they recognize where it comes from, I'm content with that. Like, Thanks, man. No, it was dope. I had a good time with that. And bro, and then the, just last two, last two things. Mm-hmm. If you can just kind of describe your experience doing um, drumline mm-hmm. and ATL. How did, how did you get those roles, and how how were your your experiences with those roles? Man, both of those roles. Although I auditioned for them and I earned them, and I competed just like everybody else. Um, they were both that lane. They were both Atlanta films, and they were also both films. Shout out to Dallas Austin, the legendary, the living legend Dallas Austin, um, one of the founding fathers of Atlanta's music scene. Um, if you don't know, Google him. Like the credits, the credits are too much. You know what I'm saying to even try to list. Yeah, recently inducted songwriter Hall of Fame. I mean, you know he's a. He's a giant. He's a juggernaut out here, you know, as it, as it relates to um, black music producers and um, becoming like huge pop producers and that kind of thing. But anyway, um, both Drumline and ATL are loosely based off of different periods in his life. The Drumline, unbeknownst to a lot of people, is based off of... Um, Dallas's involvement, I guess, in his high school band in Columbus, Georgia, where he played snare. He played in the percussion section in the band. And so Nick Cannon's character is loosely based off of Dallas Austin's experience in high school as a drummer. And they just translated that onto the screen for Drumline. So that's his story. And he's also the executive producer of that. ATL is the same thing. ATL was originally... Um, titled uh, Jelly Bean. Jelly Bean was a skating rink in Atlanta, on the south side of Atlanta, um, where groups like Outkast, TLC, all of like the the legendary groups that came out of that golden era of black music in Atlanta during the LaFace era and the So-So Deaf area, they all used to converge on this, you know, skating rink and skate and play their music and come up with dance routines and fellowship with one another and hang out. That was like the club in early Atlanta. And all of those routines and skate crews and shit like that are skate crews that, or, or well, they're not the actual skate crews, but it's reminiscent of how Dallas and Jermaine and all of them grew up in different skate crews or just being different skaters and hanging out and serving as DJs at the skating rink and playing their beats up there and hosting parties up there. and You know what I'm saying? Like, that was part of Atlanta's uh, uh, foundation as far as black music was Jelly Beans. Um, so the story is, like, Rashad, that's Dallas, the cross between Dallas and, um, and Rashad's brother, uh, was him, and Nunu, is like supposed to be like T-Boz because T-Boz is 
That's where Dallas met TLC, was in Jelly Bean. And that's why T-Boz is an executive producer on ATL as well, because that's her story as well. That's how her and uh, her and Dallas met. Wow. Were in that was in that environment. So the movie was a great deal of it when we were shooting it was based on the skating aspect of it. But then over time, as we were shooting it, and the studio was looking at the dailies, they were saying, man, this is evolving into something else. This is evolving into like an urban kid story. Like, you know, like a coming of age, but urban, but real story. I think we want to focus on that. And so... As we were shooting the film, they were literally like rewriting the script as we were shooting it. And then there were some there were some issues that they were running into with the owners of Jelly Bean where they didn't want to license the name over to Warner Brothers for whatever reason. And so Warner Brothers was like, fuck you guys. We'll call it something else. And um, so they called it ATL. They called it ATL. And um, it ended up being a movie, really a coming of age movie about some kids in Atlanta. It really turned into an Atlanta story. And Chris Robinson did a phenomenal job in 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 doing that. Like I know he fought a lot of battles um between, you know, himself and in the studio and trying to get them because he was a first of all, he's a black director, music video director. You know, unfortunately, um, but it's true, a lot of those guys don't really transition well into feature films for whatever reason. Um, you know, a lot of uh, black hip-hop film directors that have a background in music videos um, have an ability to tell a story visually, but have an inability, some, not all, but, but some have an inability to be able to just simply tell a story. You know what I'm saying? And there's a difference between presenting a story visually and for it to be eye-popping. And there's another thing where you just like, show the story. Tell the story. And Chris is one of those great directors that's ambidextrous in that regard where he can give you something that's visually appealing and stimulating, but also make sure that you don't lose track of the story and what's going on and that it doesn't lose... You know what I'm saying? The heart and the soul. And um, I give Chris a lot of credit for that. Like, the main reason why that film is such a classic, you know, everybody gives the actors a ton of credit. Everybody shouts out Tip. You know, everybody loves Teddy. Everybody loves Nunu. You know, everybody loves Big Boy's character. Like, I get it. But that film wouldn't be what it is today had it not been for, you know, Chris Robinson's direction. And the vision that he had to present this really cool coming of age story set in a town and within a culture that not many people had seen on a mainstream level yet. Right. You know what I'm saying? So he did a phenomenal job with doing that. And, you know, I, I give him a lot of credit. But that work, working, on, working on both of those films was fun. I thank Dallas for that opportunity, for those opportunities. I had to audition for both, yeah, because, I mean... You know, is Dallas's is Dallas's film, but he's not the studio. Like, you know, he can he can suggest like any other executive producer, they can suggest, 
You know what I'm saying? Or if they got that kind of rapport established with a studio where they can say, no, I want this guy, then yeah, they can get him. But most of the time, when you're playing a supporting role, like the ones that I played in both of those films, you know, they want to see who's the best man for the job. Um, but, you know, I, I went in there and did my thing. But, you know, I'm pretty sure Dallas, um, based on the relationship that we've had over the years as friends, definitely put in a good word for me and you know, both of those films have been culturally impactful and have allowed me to, you know, keep my face out there in that sense of, you know, doing kind of like timeless material that captures a moment uh, that makes people want to go back and look at to, you know, feel something again. Like when you have, when you make films or you're a part of projects where people enjoy watching them because they feel something from them, that's dope. Like, you know what I'm saying? That that's when you know you're doing some good work. And your roles in both ATL and Drumline, although you weren't, you know, the the main actor, you played uh, very significant roles because uh, you know very relatable roles. Uh, you know, like when like Drumline, you're you know you're you're pledging for the for the, the fraternity, and you were trying to pick up the girl. And ATL, your accent, your grill. It just, I think it it resonated with uh, a lot of people, and that's, I think that's why you're so significant to pop culture for those specific no, it's the, roles. No, like, I totally agree with you, and I never, I never looked at it like that. But I mean, even with you kind of mentioning that, um, both of those roles, whether it be in Drumline or whether it was in ATL were real representations of people that are in our community. They were, they're very authentic characters. Like uh, Ernest, I think was his name, in Drumline. You know, the whole time, a lot of people, uh, especially black people that attended HBCUs, they loved that character because they recognized that he was pledging. Right. And that had never been seen. First of all, the HBCU experience, with the exception of, do, um, school days in a different world, the TV show, the HBCU experience, meaning historically black colleges um, and universities, I'm sorry. Um, HBCUs have never been presented to mainstream audiences like that and the things that go on within HBCUs and the black culture that exists. Like, people haven't seen getting hazed into a fraternity before, into a black fraternity. So they got to see an aspect of that, which provided a certain level of authenticity. With um, ATL, people had never seen what it takes to go get a gold grill and the guys that do them and the culture behind that and having slugs and what it means and why these guys wear this shit in their mouth. Like nobody had ever seen that before in mainstream America was something that they were familiar with in the South and especially in Atlanta, you know what I'm saying? South side and Southwest side and shit, but they had never seen anything like that, you know, in fucking in, in Des Moines, Iowa, you know what I'm saying? So I think that's where I've been really fortunate and blessed as well as an actor is that I've played these, you know, very key roles that stand out for people. That you know are are relevant to the culture that 
are able to just to connect in a way where the community will put their stamp of approval on it, but then people that are not from it can appreciate it and see the beauty in it and say, man, that's cool. Like, you know, I, cause I, I get white kids that come up to me like, man, I got these slugs. Like I got this grill cause I saw you in ATL and you know, my daddy tripped out when he first saw, but then when I showed him the movie, he kind of understood like just random shit like that. You know what I mean? Like, then when you hear it, when you're approached with it, you're like, wow. And I helped that little thing that I just did in there help to. Was that improv that you did there or was that part of the script? Oh, no, that was part of the script. But the, the but be, but yeah, but being like the way that it was done and the, the way that those guys are that fit you out for slugs and stuff and that whole interaction that you have with your clients and, the, you know, and hustling to get the next gig. And it like those are those are real niggas that down in Atlanta that really do that you know what I'm saying and make money from that and especially at Eddie's Gold Grills like when I got fitted for for my grill uh for the movie I went right down to Eddie's in southwest Atlanta right by Greenbrier Mall and got my shit fitted and sat there with Eddie and talked and shot the shit and the whole nine and so you have the grill you, you kept the grill no Warner Brothers kept the grill That's believe okay. it believe it or not Warner Brothers. I have no idea. Maybe it was. I mean, because you know how they have their movie museums and shit. Like maybe it's for that. I don't know why they would want to keep some gold teeth, but they did just for nostalgic purposes. But nah, when uh, because I asked, I was like, man, can I keep? They was like, man, the studio, they want everything. They want the clothes. They want the shoes. They want the grill. They want everything. Because you know, they they can't anticipate if a film is going to have like, you know, some kind of cultural significance to where it can become like a cult classic and they want to be able to, if they hit on that right fortune, you know, they want to be able to like, Oh, this is what the characters wore in the movie. And here's and one thing that I always like to make clear and touch on. And, you know, as much as, as much detail as I, as I can is, yeah, you, you know, you've been in the, in the movie industry since you were a kid, you know, you've played significant roles from Lion King to young Michael Jackson to, you know, Drumline, ATL, your hook on Chingy's hit record. But from the outside looking in, of course, it just seems like, you know, you live this extravagant life, uh, you know, with no worries, no stress, no ups and downs. So, if you, you know, if you can briefly kind of just break down or just touch on how your journey, you know, hasn't been all, you know, a straight line of, of all triumphs. You've had your ups and downs or your learning experiences and, you know, cause that, that's how you've learned, uh, you know, so can you kind of just break that down or, you know, uh, you know, provide some, some feedback, maybe some, um, some inspiration for anybody trying to pursue what you're doing or, you know, travel down the road that you've traveled down. Now, let me be the, let me be the first to say, um, that no, I've definitely experienced, have experienced my fair share of ups and downs. Um, and I wouldn't even say ups and downs. I've had highlights and I've had learning experiences. You know what I'm saying? And I've had challenges that I've had to overcome. And those challenges have helped make me a stronger person. 
and brought me thus far where I'm at right now in my life and in my career. And therefore, I have no regrets um, because I needed to go through those things in order to get here where I'm at right now. But yes, there have been moments in my life where, like anybody else, I've felt defeated. Um, there are moments in my life, like anybody else, where I've felt uncertain. There are times even now, uh, as many years as I've been in this industry and the things that I've accomplished in my career, there are times when I have moments of doubt. Um, there, there, are, there are times when um, I may question myself. Um, there are times when I feel exhausted and where I think, well, man, maybe, but then I'll be reminded and like God will remind me that I do have a purpose. I do have a true calling and that this, what I'm doing is allowing me in some kind of way to like serve his purpose as well, because I recognize that through my talent, it attracts people to me. And when I get that opportunity, when attracting people to me and I got something positive to share or some insight to provide, that's what God wants me to do with that gift. That's what God wants me to do with that moment. So I figure as long as I just keep doing right and as long as I keep operating from a frequency and a level of just being genuine and sincere and coming from the right place, I'll continue to be blessed. So even in the trials, even in the challenges. I know that's only for a season because the the seeds that I've planted, the things that I've done, God knows my heart. And I'm not doing anything out here, at least I don't believe I'm doing out anything out here that will warrant karmically for me to receive something fucked up. So even in those times where I've experienced um, those challenges, I'll get reminded, like, God would tap me on the shoulder and be like, but man, this is temporary. I got something. Don't question. I know it's hard right now, but you know what? You're going to thank me later when you get out of that shit because the reason why I put you through that is so you wouldn't have to go through this. So keep fighting a good fight. Keep fighting a good fight. Do you believe in yourself? Do you believe in me? All right, shut the fuck up then. And stop talking about it and be about it. You talking about you a man of faith? All right. One walk. Keep going forward then. Nigga, you talking about a few years or a few months that you may have had a difficult time. Man, I had Moses in the wilderness for 40 years. And you complaining to me about you didn't get the movie role? You know what I'm saying? So, like, you know, like, my cousin just beat cancer. You know what I'm saying? Like, like uh, a month ago. You know what I'm saying? A couple months ago, I think, around this time. Just beat cancer. You know, it's real shit going on out here. Like, it's people going through some real shit out here, man. For me to take the attitude of, oh, man, well, you know, I'm, man, I wanted that role. Or, you know, or even when you have times, and this happens for all actors and all entertainers, where you may not be working as much. Or you may not be as busy as you would like to, for whatever reason. You know, whether you're doing it consciously or whether just things, circumstances happen. And, but you got to keep in mind and like, hey, man, I'm blessed. This is a privilege to be able to do this. Let me not take myself too seriously. Let me put my faith and trust in God and let me just do the necessary work. Let me keep moving and let me keep looking forward. 
towards the horizon to a brighter day. And it'll work out. This is temporary. It'll work out. What's meant for me, I'll get. What's not meant for me, I won't. What, what, what it doesn't want in my life, he will remove it. And it's for the better. Evidently. So why am I going to question that? I've seen, because I, I mean, I've, you know, not to, not to get all preachy and spiritual and everything, but like, I've had moments in my life where at that moment I'll be like, did God, what man? That's some bullshit. Like, why you let that happen like that, man? A year, it could be a year. It could be five years. It could be 10 years. He'll show me. That's why. And I'll be like, oh, yup. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't have been able to handle that. I didn't know that motherfucker was like that, or I didn't know that shit was gonna turn out like that. Yeah, all right, let me shut up, dude. So that's why now, when things happen that I may not understand at the time, I go, ah, okay, all right, I'm gonna trust you. I really wanted that shit, but all right. Let me just keep pressing forward. Let me keep putting the work in. Okay. Okay. Keep a good attitude. When you see the next person winning, cheer them on. Right. Right. You know what I'm saying? You see somebody doing good. You may not be in your season right now, but because what that does, that attracts it to you still. Be happy for others. You know what I'm saying? Put out good energy. And I guarantee you that most of the time, but not most of the time, all the time, it comes back. It comes to fruition, the purpose, the true destiny will manifest and come to fruition in some form, may not be in the form that you had initially imagined it as being or wanted it to be, but it comes. I, I'm a witness to it. So that's why I don't view life as ups and downs. I just view them as victories and lessons to be learned or challenges that I've had to hurdle over. And with all of them, good, bad, or ugly, or indifferent, I've learned from them. And it brought me to this point where I'm at now, where like I recognize and understand my true purpose. I recognize and understand that, like, and I always have, but even more now, I recognize and understand the power of my voice, the power of my influence. And I want to use that to do the right thing. I want to use that to uplift people. I want to use that to motivate people. I want to use that to inspire people. I want to use that to help people. Because at the end of the day, like, I'm not going to be able to take shit with me when I leave this motherfucker. But if I can leave good currency out there or somebody can say by the time, you know, when I leave or whatever, like, man, you know, Jay, we was a cool-ass nigga, man. That nigga, he was genuine, tried helping me out, man. Or he did this for me or whatever the case may be. Or, man, he inspired me. And say, That's what it's all about at the end of the day, man. Because you can't take the movies with you. Like, that shit will stay here. And, you know, people can look at that. But even after a certain period of time, they're going to even forget about that. Yeah, man, definitely. You've had an incredible journey. You started very young and are still here putting in work. And like we always talk about, it's like uh, your, your best is yet to come. I feel like, I'm, I feel like I'm, I'm really just now coming into what I'm really here to do. Like, that was just the first quarter, I think. Like, there's a lot, and I feel it. I feel it on my spirit, and I'm reminded of it some way, somehow, every day. Like, man, we're just getting started. Like, we got a lot more work to do. And 
it's not just going to be for your glory, kid. Like, we're going to, we're going to do some shit out here. And we're going to inspire a lot of people. We're going to uplift a lot of people. We're going to do some great shit. And we're going to have a lot of fun doing it. But, you know, don't just keep your eyes on one thing. Like, be open to all. You know what I'm saying? And and use proper discernment to know at that time when to go, when not to go. Like, I'm beginning, I've, I've learned to listen to that inner voice now. You know, I, it took, and it took me going through a couple things. So I don't, you know, regret it. Like, I'm glad. I'm glad that I've, I've, I've even gone through some of the things that I've gone through. I'm glad that I've had some of the experiences that I've had. Like, some people would view the thing with Chingy, um, with the one call away, call away record, um, or the snub, like how that started out. People, a lot of people would probably view that as being a negative thing. I don't. Because what it made me realize was at that time, you know what? I can't expect everybody to have my back like that from now on. I need to motherfucking be on my shit. Yeah, let me, okay. And from that point, I learned that lesson. I don't do that anymore. And this made me a stronger person, a stronger businessman. With any other unfortunate incident. Like when I was like, you know what? I don't want to record anymore. Like I don't feel comfortable up here. And God told me right then and there. He said, there's going to come a time. Where I'm going to make it easier for you to put out your music to where you can get it directly to your audience. Just wait on it. You're going to be a little bit older, but I'm going to make it to where when you put that shit out one day, it's going to work. And I feel it slowly approaching. I don't know what it's going to be, and I don't know when it's going to be, but I know I'm going to be presented with an opportunity sooner rather than later to put out a record. And that shit's going to soar. It's going to win. I just don't know when it's going to happen, but I... I know that it's coming. I know that even as far as like, you know, my career as an actor and all of that. Like, man, I'm not tripping about just taking on any role because I'm waiting for the right one. I'm waiting for God to go, that one. That's the one. Go towards that now. And I'll go, okay. And that'll be the one that will possibly take me to the fucking Oscars. But I don't need to... And this is just my viewpoint, but I don't feel that I need to hurry. I don't feel like I need to rush. I don't feel like I'm under any pressure. I don't feel like I'm not going to do it or that I'm not going to win. I'm optimistic. I feel strong. And even when I have my questionable days, leading back to your original question, when I have my days, that's what I place at the forefront of my mind. Like, this is temporary. We're on a mission. We're on a mission from God, borrowing that from the Blues Brothers. We're on a mission from God. We're good. Suck it up. Are you missing any meals? No. Is there a roof over your head? Yes. Does your, your mother and your son have a roof over their head? They happy? They're fed? They got clothes on their back? Everybody's alive? Everybody's healthy? People can see, hear, walk, talk, love, hug? Thank God, praise God, see the sun, feel the sun. What are we talking about here? Enjoy the journey, man. And that's where I'm at. I appreciate you uh, sitting down with me, bro, discussing your journey. Like I said, we go back at least 10 years, over 10 years at this point. Uh, You know, you've seen me grow. I've seen you grow. Uh, You know, but I, I, you know, it was fun kind of picking your brain and learning more about the details of your journey 
you know, because I've seen you put in work. So it's always good to see you continue to keep doing your thing. And, you know, you're always uh, full of inspiration. So, you know, it means a lot for me to have you on my podcast discussing your journey and possibly inspiring even one person, man, that's listening to do their thing and keep pushing. And I mean, you, you know this. I mean, you've even with your career and the things that you're pursuing, this is what we do. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is a, a, a rubber meets the road, you know, faith kind of thing. Um, like, you really got to, you got to walk it. Like, you just can't talk that shit. And no matter who you see that's successful in this business or in life in general, know that they went through some shit to get where they went, to get to, to where they're at now. It wasn't handed to them. Nobody just said, oh, this is for you. No, they went through their bumps and bruises too. But the difference between them and the other people who haven't been as successful is that they didn't quit. It's like that clip that they that they show at Jay-Z. He says, you know, the only difference between us and them that didn't make it, we didn't quit. We just kept going. And that's real Shit, that's the mission that I'm on. It's like, okay, cool. We're not quitting. We are going to be here until God clocks us out, my nigga. We're going to be here rocking. Okay, so we're a little slow on this end. Let's just say, hypothetically speaking, oh, we're a little slow on this acting right here, right now. Shooting over here. We're going to produce some shit. We're going to create our own shit. Oh, the the the, the films uh, you can't get can't get a project off real quick with the okay we gonna we gonna shoot over here and do some music real quick we gonna oh you can't get can't get some music done oh man we gonna shoot over here we gonna open up a business somewhere like man there's so much you you never know but you stay optimistic and you keep fucking going man no matter what and if there's anything and I can share with people after listening to this long ass long winded interview and anybody. That's looking for like inspiration, man. Like, know that shit, man. Don't fucking give up. Like, if you believe in it, then go hard. Because you're the one that's in charge of it. You're the one that's in charge of your destiny. You write the script. Now, fuck what anybody else got to say. Like, if they don't get it, you know what I'm saying? You got people discouraging you or whatever, get away from them motherfuckers. It could be people in your own family. But you, if you got to do what you got to do, then you, I mean, then you do it with it by any means necessary and within, and within good moral standing and ethics, like go for your shit. You feel me? Absolutely. Jason, I appreciate you.